Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. December 24th, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. From here on in, I shoot without a script. See if anything comes of it instead of my old shit. First shot, Roger. Tuning the Fender guitar he hasn't played in a year. This won't tune, so we hear. He's just coming back from half a year of withdrawal. Are you talking to me? Not at all. Are you ready? Hold that focus steady. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL. Welcome back to Broadway Breakdown. It's been so long. How you doing? How you been? A podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The Big Move, and it is covering shows that were so successful off-Broadway they just had to transfer to the Great White Way and try their luck there. Yeah, I'm like there. I should rewrite that. Fuck it. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is Gunkle of the Pod, Adam Ellsbury. Hello! Hi, Adam. You just... <laughs> now I don't remember what you said in your intro, but it made me, th- made me think of Carolina Change, and I wanted to say it's warmish for October. Because <laughs> sure, it is. warmish for October. Um, maybe the way I said, try the luck of Leia. Um, there, there, luck there. Um... So, first of all, guys, some housekeeping. Since you last heard from me, Broadway Breakdown has been picked up by the Broadway Podcast Network. Woo! Woo! What does that mean exactly? (laughs) Technically speaking, I get paid, but only if there are ads. So, you're going to hear some ads getting chopped in here from time to time. Can't tell you when. They gave me instructions, and I promptly forgot them, but I will read them once I edit this episode. So, apologies if any sentence just gets cut off and there's an ad read. We're also going super out of order for this series because, in truth, it doesn't really matter. We're not covering the uh, career of a specific writer. And, I mean, we could maybe start with one of the earliest shows that transferred from Off-Broadway to Broadway, which is The Golden Apple. But it's been real tough getting someone to say yes to that. And Chronology out the window. Chronology out the window. So I'm releasing episodes based off of how soon I can get people to record. So it's all over the place but uh by the time that this episode comes out i will have on my instagram the list of every show we're going to cover so you can go back to that and check off when we do uh when we cover one of those episodes uh before we talk about the episode uh sort of the uh show that we're covering i also want to read out two itunes reviews we got oh, yes oh we're doing it at the beginning now well one of them uh there's a reason it's because of one of them so first one i'll get out of the not get out of the way it's a it's a lovely <laughs> review uh wait cue the light in the piazza overture thank you adam <clears throat> five stars and that's literally the title as well five stars this podcast has the most opinionated gay i've ever heard and he's wrong about everything <laughs> and that's a quote from matt Koplick. apparently i said that in an episode about yourself about myself <laughs> i think i i think i said i think what i said was uh, I don't care what you write, so long like you could write this podcast that has no opinion gay and he's wrong about everything. So they quoted me, and then their quote is, "You give me everything I crave from Wikipedia, but I just can't scratch that itch." So, I yes, it's this podcast has has the most opinionated gay I've he- ever heard, and he's wrong about everything. Matt Koplick, you give me everything I crave from Wikipedia, but I just can't scratch that itch. Me, that's the review. Amazing, amazing. Next one. This is why I wanted to do this now. 
so the first this this person had written the review a while ago and then they edited it and then they edited it again uh so i'm gonna read both headlines but read the most recent updated review land of gods overture music the first headline five stars by the way is sally murphy would approve oh yeah is it sally murphy i wish i wish it was sally murphy you imagine if sally murphy's just like third person reviewing sally murphy, murphy approve. <laughs> well i met sally murphy and then the most recent update hashtag justice for smile so this person's really trying to flatter me oh i see well good good job whoever you are you you, you know figured me out well okay continuing on five stars i'm 13 years old living in alaska i started listening to this pod about five months ago i downloaded the ones about the shows that i know and love and now i listen to at least a one podcast per day i would really love for matt to make episodes about dear van hansen tick tick boom wicked the music man and the lightning thief uh oh and, and an earlier one they had said rent oh uh, yes they also said rent <clears throat> so they took that one out but now they're saying rent uh i uh i know that i'm really young and that i don't know as much about theater as john and matt john's not on the pod anymore so don't worry about it i'm also not going to pretend that i get all of your theater references but i'm working on it please make episodes weekly again i really miss listening to them well guess what jackson we are covering rent we are back and don't you worry your pretty little head about not getting all the references you're 13 years old you're doing just great kid oh my god jackson you sweet thing you sweet thing that is a, that is so i i'm sorry that's that's rude of me. When I was thirteen, I hated when people called me cute. But that was that was a very very sweet review. So and and that's I, I love it. Jackson, you're two different headlines alone. Sally Murphy would approve. Hashtag justice for smile. I already like you. I don't like children. I famously don't like Gen Z. I find them very annoying and loud. But <laughs> I like you. I think you're fun. I liked your review. Thank you very much. Uh, we will not be covering every show you listed, but we will be covering Rent. We will be covering Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, we'll not be covering Tick, Tick, Boom as it did not transfer. Wicked did not come from off-Broadway. And Lightning Thief, no. I, I only have so much time in my life. But thank you very much. And I hope you like this episode because what are we covering today, Adam? Rent, 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 rent. We're not going to pay rent. Um, very exciting. And I think I, – I don't know if we're – I don't know how today is going to go. I really don't. It's up in the air. It is up in the air. Because I think my response when you said this, when you when you asked me to come and do this episode, was yes. Yeah. But then I also said, I wonder how many people I'm going to anger while when we have the conversation about this show. Well, let's also be very clear. My first thing to you was, here are all the shows I'm covering. Let me know which ones you like. Just know I'm also sticking you wherever I want you. <laughs> you didn't get right. it. You didn't well, get and, it and and to and honestly, just <laughs> spoiler alert: the show that I really wanted to do, Matt is not covering, which is Spelling Bee. Yeah, I know that might be a bonus one. There, that was a really tough one to gut. There were there were a couple that I was clinging to for dear life, and the series as it is is going to get me all the way I think to May, starting in oh wow, starting in November. So. Well, Hopefully, I get to come back for more than one. But even if, but but if you do an extension for the Patreon, you just mm-hmm. you just plug Spelling Bee right on in there, and I've, I've been, got the history ready to go. I've been so bad about the Patreon, but I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it back up again very very soon. Right. Um, but yeah, we're talking about Rent, baby. We're talking about Rent. Uh, Adam. Yeah. What is your history with Rent? Good question. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't remember what my first uh, exposure to Rent was. I I was. I can tell you, I was in high school when Rent came out. Mm-hmm. I, I was a freshman in high school. 
And it was like, it was just kind of everywhere all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. I think I was probably on a, on a, on TV somewhere. It, it might've been good old Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah. The woman who covered everything. Yeah. It might've been Rosie O'Donnell, they, but it might've been like on an MTV news. I couldn't tell you, but I just know that like we went from not having rent to rent being fucking everywhere. Yeah. Like, yeah everywhere and that was on purpose from the producing team i was reading michael riedel's uh singular sensation which is his sequel to razzle dazzle and you do have to take both of those books with a grain of salt because he only interviews a handful of people per show so he does not get all the facts because you know memories get fuzzy over time but he does a mostly good job and he does and he does a really good job of um painting a lovely picture but with rent as they were transferring from off-Broadway to Broadway, their goal in terms of marketing was never let a single day go by without Rent being mentioned somewhere in the papers or on TV. And never and never having it being about the fact that Jonathan Larson died. Always mm-hmm. just about it being, it's the show, it's the show, it's the show. Because his death is what, spoiler alert, his death, is what got the show national attention when it was off-Broadway. But then the reviews made it even bigger. And, after, and then, like, all the celebrities showing up. So it just became a movement in a moment very very quickly mm-hmm. um when did you first see rant um first time i saw rent was a uh, national tour in 97 i can oh wait i can probably tell you the exact <clears throat> date as i brought with me my rent book and mm-hmm. my playbill from when i saw rent at the golden gate theater in san francisco uh with daphne rubin vega Woo! and in the ensemble um karen olivo was in it ko um, I don't. Oh, right. Yes, I'm sorry. Ko. Is well, Karen Levo at the time, as, as she they are officially going by now. Yes. Um, I can't find my my ticket stuff. I could have sworn I had it. Anyway, uh, it was it was probably spring of '97, I think. Um, so that was my first time seeing it live. Mm-hmm. Um, Did it convert you? Were you a rent head at the time? Well, I had. Our, I knew Rent before I'd seen it. Like at that point, the cast album had been out because yeah. it came out really soon after they opened on Broadway. I think. They. I mean. We're, Pedal to the metal does not begin to describe yeah. how they pushed this. So, thing. like, at the, so at the time, I was doing, I, I was a you know a kid doing local theater, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I think I was, I don't remember what show I was doing in, at the time, but like it was just one of those shows that like everybody that was aware of any type of theater knew of, um, and so you know anybody who, especially usually I was the youngest person in a lot of things that I did, so all of like the the twenty something late teenager people in whatever show I was in were like obsessed. Yeah. So it got passed to me very quickly. Um, and yeah, I just remember at the time, like thinking that it looked very like edgy and cool. And, and I don't, this isn't at the time I'm saying dangerous. It seemed. Um, and yeah, I just, it was one of those things where I immediately was like, what is this? I need to listen to it. I need to see it. Yeah. They, whoever was doing the job, did their job where i was like must yeah must must know must see must hear in its own simplicity tends to be the thing that makes uh event theater event theater you know what i mean Mm. like especially when you look at um the posters or the way that marketing happens so they talked about this in uh singular sensation as well when they were transferring from off broadway to broadway they went you know how do we market this like what's the poster going to be so they did a full page out in the times that was just the title rent and they did it in uh sort of stencil and then uh right. typewriter e type of like tickets and just you know that was it right um and 
for a while. Yep. Uh, Adam has his book on rent. And that <laughs> that image was sort of followed it everywhere. And there were no – they didn't really market it with images from the show. They didn't uh, – they didn't, I don't know, even know if they did commercials that early that showed much of the show. They would perform on Rosie or on the Tonys, but they didn't really – I don't know. They didn't. They didn't do like super in depth. They did seasons of love on every yeah. ne- network television and, show. And they also, I mean, they did the like R and B cover of Seasons of Love for the cast albums. All like they were oh, really Stevie Wonder. Yeah, 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 they were really pushing to make that like the song, mm-hmm. which I guess it did because everyone knows it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know, but it also it, it, it eventually kind of go through food poisoning with that kind of stuff, you know, and it, uh-huh. and eventually that's the easiest song to make. Yeah. The the spoof yeah no but but uh but so my first exposure to it uh before prior to seeing it was definitely cast recording which mm. was um i mean it was this is for, for anybody who's on the younger end of things who wasn't around when rent first came out mm-hmm. like this is this was hamilton level cuckoo yeah. like it was really i, I guess i guess hamilton sp- stretched a little bit wider but especially if you were like into theater and you were younger like this was it was everywhere and yeah. like and, and you just couldn't really escape it um and everybody in it just was sort of like immediately iconic yeah well so there are sorry i didn't mean to giggle but it's, it's so funny anytime i read an oral history or whatever about any show on broadway that has had success before Hamilton. Mm-hmm. They always describe themselves as like we were the Hamilton of the time. Right. So like uh, the Angels in America oral history, the world only spins forward. They talk about being like we were the Hamilton of the time, and in a way, Angels was for a play. You know, it was national news. It was everywhere. Yeah. But I think Rent is the only show of that decade. There, are, I I would say there are three musicals, three American musicals of the last 40 years that really kind of shared similar DNA and it's chorus line rent and Hamilton of their origins of uh, the buzz coming from off Broadway to Broadway, their role in the pop culture zeitgeist. And on top of that, sort of the aftermath of those shows, as well as the legacy of their casts Mm -hmm. of their original companies. Yep. And we'll get into that as well. When we sort of talk about uh, the show itself and what happens afterwards, but yeah, it, it, it was everywhere to the point that I was, very sensual six years old and i was very aware of the show even not knowing what it was about because like i remember seeing posters for it everywhere and then by the time i think i was 10 yeah i was 10 and i very much knew about it and always wanted to see it my parents wouldn't let me they had seen it when it first came out they were not fans Mm -hmm. so not only did they not think i was ready for it they were like we don't want to see it again sure um and so i think when i was 11 or 12 i finally was given the cast recording because too many people in my theater circles knew it so well and i was like i can't be on the outside of this forever (laughs) i have to learn and you know when you're a theater kid if you get it depends on what age as a theater kid you are introduced to rent because you have to if you are around 13 14 i don't know i'm saying like anything younger than 19 let's just say anything younger than 19 you are it's gonna it's gonna have a positive impact on you Mm -hmm. and it's going to consume you for a little bit yep and then as you get older your relationship to it kind of changes yes and in fact adam oldsbury gunkle of the pod uh you know this because we follow each other on instagram but as i was preparing for this episode i did a poll of the people who follow me on instagram and i said what is your current what are your current feelings about rent and the options were 
Love it, won't apologize. No, ma'am, never got the appeal. My feelings on it are complicated and like the music, dislike the characters. Now, we had over 400 votes, which I do not have to tell you guys is the most I've ever gotten on a poll. It's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing. I am not, you know, Kim Kardashian, thank God. But I don't have hundreds of millions of followers. I've got a sensible 2,700, I think. Uh, 181 people, 45% of the vote, said love it. 34, 8% of the vote, said no. 135, 34% of the vote, said complicated. I was one of those people. Spoiler alert. If I could vote on my own poll, it would have been the same. 51 votes, uh, 13% of the vote, said like the music, dislike the characters. So the majority of the votes were love it, Mm. but it's not an overwhelming majority. Mm -hmm. 45%, that's not more, it's less than half. Yeah, yeah. Um, If we were to, you know, uh, combine like the music, dislike the characters with complicated, that would technically have won 47% of the vote. Uh, Yeah. So it's it's interesting. For a show that was so beloved and so immediately considered, this is important, this is impactful, Mm -hmm. this is a change, and everyone just sort of agreed, like, okay, even if you don't like it, you have to agree it's important. The taste for it has soured a bit, and even those who love it, not everyone – loves it still or if they do it's a love that is spiky Mm -hmm. and we'll get into all that as well yeah we'll get to it great Uh, yeah uh let's do it so adam what is rent about oh man how how long you got i know it's the plot is actually relatively simple well first off it's uh it's loosely based on puccini's la boheme yes and uh, it's about a group of young artists living in the East Village in the early 90s, um, some of some of them struggling with AIDS, mm-hmm. um, the rest of them all just struggling. <laughs> <laughs> struggling um, with sucking so hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, Act 1 centers around uh, every all the action happening on Christmas Eve. Uh, Especially where... over the course of three hours, I think. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's short. Yeah, 9 to midnight. Yeah. Yeah. Craziness. So, um so act one is uh we centers mostly on mark and roger who are roommates who live in uh in, in a loft that they are tr- that their friend it's uh their friend's uh, family has uh gained the uh possession of through his wife's uh father who has a ton of money um and let's see the uh, <laughs> matt left the room for a second so i'm i'm, I'm needing his his I left the room to get our food. I know our food arrived. I know, but I got nervous. Um, anyway, uh, but their their friend their friend Benny's wife now has uh, control of the building. Uh, yes, and uh, they are Benny is trying to uh, basically tear down the building and the and the lot next door to. Create he's not tra- he's not tearing down the building. He's going to uh, repurpose the building. Well, sorry, to to renovate the building and purchase the lot next door. Uh, to create a, a basically a big artist space. Um, yeah, it's not the worst idea in the world. It's not a terrible situation. So he's uh, and and in doing so, the two of them are squatting. They're they they're totally broke. Yes, and um, and so uh, and and Mark's ex girlfriend Maureen, who has recently uh, left him to date a woman, Joanne, is uh, holding a. Well, an, an, an unintentional riot in the lot space. I, it's a pr- it's a protest performance piece. A protest performance piece for the homeless. Right. <laughs> every time I hear raise money. Well, also I with, I yeah. also love it because it reminds me of Jenna Maroney in uh, Thirty Rock. It really is kind of Jenna Maroney. It's, idea, it's the 
we uh vagina day we uh, it's a day where women who for some reason uh, female celebrities who for some reason or another were never asked to perform in the vagina monologues <laughs> perform monologues about their vagina for the homeless oh to raise money for them no just for them and it's them perform it's joey behart talking about her vagina to homeless people and that's pretty much what maureen is doing yeah um so i don't know i mean anyway they're they're uh, they're upstairs neighbor next door neighbor mimi who is a young drug addict um come it sort of bothers roger yeah um i'm really butchering this it's fine the the whole point of act one ultimately is that there are relationships that are falling it's how everybody gets together is act one everybody gets together in act one um roger and mimi both uh have aids and realize that they are both suffering from aids and that is one of their major connectors besides being very sexually attracted to one did you talk about roger's past uh roger's roger's ex-girlfriend uh discovered that she had had aids and or at least hiv and passed it on to roger in a note that she left it as a a, in her suicide note yes essentially Um, roger and his ex-girl well his old girlfriend april were drug addicts they had contracted AIDS. Whoever passed on to whoever, don't know, but April got the news and killed herself because in the early 90s, AIDS was not necessarily a death sentence anymore, but especially if you had no health care, if you had no money, right, definitely was. Right. Um, and so she killed herself, and that sent Roger to rehab to get clean uh, and somehow has AZT with no money. I don't know how that happens. He and Mimi both. Well, Mimi at least has a job. Mimi, that's true. That's true. Mimi works at the Catch Scrap Club. Yeah, that's where she works. She dances. I guess. Yes. Um, <laughs> I guess. Well, I guess Roger's mom or dad pay for. That's the. We'll talk about that that, that that as well with Ryan. Is that these characters for the most part have connections with their family that are not poor. Right. We yes. There, throughout the show, there are phone calls that come from parents who all seem number one concerned about their kids who they're not hearing from. Yeah. Um. And, and providing shit for them. Mark's mom sends him a hot plate. Right. From Scarsdale. Yeah. Happy New Year from Scarsdale. Um, why does she wish him Happy New Year on... Oh, no. That's Act 2. Sorry. Yeah. I don't know why I was combining it with her Act 1 phone call. Um, but yes. So, yeah. Act 1 is just how everybody meets, how everybody gets together. Yeah. And then Act 2 is over the course of the rest of the year. And... The fallings in and out of love, basically. Yeah. And, and Maureen and Joanne break up and get together. Get I didn't together. bring up Angel and Collins. Angel yeah. is a um a drag queen i guess if the story were done now technically she'd probably be trans but at the time she's presented as a male uh someone who lives as male but is a drag queen yes they they have cast angel with trans performers now which is yes i that that sort of thing about angel and again it's something we'll talk about when we talk about the writing and sort of one of the not it's not a plot hole it's just something that i don't think was ever really considered by larson when writing it Mm is what is it that angel identifies as is angel a man who likes to dress up in drag is angel non-binary is angel gender fluid and of course a lot in the 90s not all these terms were necessarily known right but it is important to figure out yeah and 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 within the show itself they they just sort of refer to her as a drag queen yes there's one moment they they play around with angel's pronouns as well like angel's pronouns go from well mark 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 corrects himself in his eulogy spoiler alert yeah, angel, calls himself angel dies and calls re- refers to angel first as him and then corrects himself and says her yes but then when collins gets thrown out talks refers to angel as a boy and you know angel's death won't be in vain and roger goes his death is in vain right uh sorry i love my adam pascal impression but 
Yes, Angel dies, and also, then... sorry, trigger warning, everybody, it's dinner time and yeah. we're eating. I will not eat directly in the microphone. I'll, I'll try not to make well, lots of noise. This is, I think, the third episode of Broadway Breakdown where there's been eating during the episode. Okay, well, yeah. I'm just warning Listen, everybody it's, now. it's... Just because I've been picked up by a network doesn't mean I'm any less sloppy. <laughs> I am still a messy, <laughs> messy a bitch. She's a messy bitch, y'all. Uh, well, now, the only other major plot point is... Uh, oh, I don't know if uh, other men discuss Mimi. We find out used to have a thing with Benny. They kind of get back together after Roger breaks up with her. Mimi relapses because she was trying to get clean, but she relapses, goes back on heroin, is slowly dying. Roger goes away, comes back, and Mimi almost dies in his arms, but she pulls away from the white light because Angel was there. She looked good. And she said, turn around, girlfriend, and listen to that boy's song. And then they all go, oh, what a wonderful moment. And then Mark plays the footage he shot all over the year because this entire time Mark's been making his movie while Roger's been trying to make his song. Roger's song ends up being called Your Eyes. And it's fine. And then Mark shows his movie, which is just a collection of clips. Over, which is, listen, emotionally it does get me when you watch it, but when you look at it objectively, you're like, you didn't make a movie. You made a sizzle reel of your friends. Well, I think that's a great point to make about the show, just going into it. There's a lot of stuff on paper that you just go, really? Mm-hmm. But, like, somehow, in the moment, in context, it's like you're – you're you're moved you're crying what like it really does it, it is a very effective show regardless of its well that's flaws. that's the magic of musical theater yes because musical theater i think Lindsay ellis said it and we'll get to Lindsay ellis oh i rewatched that the other night as did i uh i think she's very astute i think she's sometimes a little unfair but i, I she makes a lot of very good points point is Lindsay Ellis said and I think her movie musical video musicals are something that your head doesn't understand but your heart does and it's not that you have to true. it's not necessarily that you have to turn off your head because there are some amazing musicals that really do the work for you and mm -hmm. figure it all out and again it's another reason why like while Rent has so much greatness about it it is also very rough because there are some things that I just don't think Larson thought about and I'll talk and that I don't think that's hyperbole we'll talk about this as I discuss with Adam and you guys sort of the trajectory of this show, how it kind of came to be, and the bumps that it had along the way. Mm -hmm. But there are certain plot things that make no sense. There are character traits that come out of nowhere. And there are things that are just sort of out of left field that, you know, because the music is good, because you're on along for the ride, you don't really think about at the time. Right. But when you're analyzing it, and, you know, not all theater is necessarily meant to be analyzed, but really good works can hold up under scrutiny. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, what, one of my favorite musicals is Les Miserables. That is a show where it's not so much that it falls apart under scrutiny, but rather the, like, it's not in the details of Les Mis. It's in the grand, bold brushstrokes, you know? And Rent is sort of the same thing. The difference is that, and they're also, you know, they're all both about shows, uh, they're shows about people who are struggling um, and dying. But Rent is, so as a time that we have a little more context for, a little more historical context. And I don't think that Les Mis is trying to necessarily glamorize poverty in the way that Rent is. Mm -hmm. And what, and we're, you have two people here who like this show and understand what's effective about it, while also 
wanting to very honestly talk about all the things about it that are rough. Yeah. So I and I and I I sort of said this to Matt before. I I I I I have a lot of feelings about this show, but it doesn't mean that I don't like this show. So I, because I, I said the listeners are really going to hate me after we talk about yeah. this. At least, I'm sorry, at least the, the listeners who are big fans of this show. But I hope everybody who's listening to this knows that deep down, I, I literally just rewatched the, um, the bootleg of the original Broadway cast on YouTube two days ago. And did I cry multiple times? Yes, I did. Well, also that original cast... It's There's not... also magic in that original cast. And things changed over time. Yes. Because of how production decided to start directing actors. Some of them for the worse. Yes. Well, so there's a moment, for example, at Angel's funeral. So, like, one of the jokes of Maureen and Joanne is how hot and cold they run, right? Like, they're always off and on. Right. And they're at the time of Angel's funeral, they are off. Right. And they get or back to— They come together right afterward. Yeah. After the— um, um, During Goodbye Love. Yeah. After the fight happens. Right. And the, I can't believe this is goodbye. And Maureen and Joanne have the moment. It's like, I missed you so much. And they kiss. And Maureen says, ow, what is it? It's nothing. You, you bit my tongue. No, I didn't. You, you did. It's bleeding. Like, show me. Oh, she doesn't <laughs> right. believe me. And the way that it's directed now, if you watch Ines Spinoza and Tracy Toms in the oof, the the video of the final performance. Right. And I also remember it from when I saw the show. It's done for comedy. They start yelling at each other. And then they see everybody looking at them like, are you fucking serious? And then they hug it out. And like, it's played for laughs. Mm -hmm. The original production, if you watch Adina and Freddie, it's Freddie Walker, right? Yep. Yeah. They don't play it for laughs. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it, in a weird way, it actually makes them fall back in love with each other because Joanne hears ow and she's concerned and jo- and Ma- maureen doesn't want to start a fight so she's like it's, fi- it's fine you bit my tongue just like no i didn't and then maureen starts to laugh like natural like this is so you you wouldn't believe me she's like she doesn't believe me and and they become like an old couple that just like knows each other's quirks mm-hmm. so it doesn't make them angry with each other it just endears them even more to each other it's like i knew you would react this way and like i love you anyway it's yeah it's very sweet and it keeps those characters from being too broad mm-hmm. which is something that is important because there's a lot of lack of specificity for many of these characters and you need the details oh boy do you need the details What is your go-to song in this show? Oh, sorry. Go-to song, and then what do you think is objectively a piece that maybe works best in it? I can tell you what I think is the best number in the show. Okay. What do you? What's what's your what's your best? I think. Well, I think the best piece of writing in Rent is "Light My Candle." Mm. I think that is a perfect musical theater scene, and it's almost as if Jonathan Larson. And he did not have the idea to make a modern La La Land. That was someone else. And we'll get into, again, we'll get into all that. Um, there's no structure as well anymore. We stopped doing structure. So it's all just <laughs> going to get mixed in together. But it's almost as if the idea was brought to him. He had it. And then 
looked at the Mimi. What's the name of the? It's like R- Rudolfo or whatever. Rudolfo. In, Rudolfo. Mimi and Rudolfo in Labo M, and when they meet, mm-hmm. and he rewrote it for young artists in the East Village, late eighties, early nineties, and wrote this scene. And, and, like, presented it, like, at a BMI workshop or whatever. Like, I have this idea for a modern Labo Web. And, like, here's the scene I wrote of, like, Rudolfo and Mimi meeting. And it's and – you watch, you listen to it and you watch it and you're like, yeah, if, if this were all I were given, I, I would give you $100,000 right now to keep going. Because it sound, like it just works so well. And it's a really well-structured uh, scene, really well-created. gives them both a lot of action to do. And when you watch uh, the original staging – I don't know what other stagings do, but the original staging – they play with how they both are always blowing out Mimi's candle to get her mm. back in the room. Mm-hmm. So she blows it out twice on her own, and then he blows it out, I think, the third time. Yeah, it's like it's a bit of a cat and mouse yeah. game. I mean, so when, for example, and it's – if you watch the video of the final performance with Renee Lee Goldsberry, mm-hmm. who's a little too trained for Mimi, and we'll also talk about that with recastings and whatnot, mm-hmm. but she does a really good moment with the blowing out of the candle the first time. She comes in, and – he lights the candle for her, and he goes, nothing your smile reminded me of. I always remind people of. And she's being flirty. She thinks she's going to get this at some point. Who is she? And he goes, she died. Her name was April. And she immediately can tell that the vibe is changing. He's going to start thinking about the ex-girlfriend. And she immediately blows out the candle, just whips it out. And she goes, it's out again. <laughs> Sorry about your friend. And I'm like, that is a baller move. It's just really well done. I think that is the best piece of writing in the show in terms of just, like, ironclad airtight there are other things that are maybe more musically adventurous like mm-hmm. christmas bells is musically a really adventurous piece yeah and then i was i honestly i think another day is the song that i listen to the most even though dramatically speaking i have issues with it sure i would say so my go-to song mm-hmm. is mm, god if i could the number of times that my go-to song has changed over the years oh sure um, I would say current is is probably um is probably another day. Look at us. That's probably my go to. Um, my favorite or be- my the one I think that is the best. I think. I think um, I think life support's pretty great. Yeah, there's something I I I there's something about that scene. Because I, I th- it's it's one of the few um, scene songs that exists in the show that I think really um, does its job and is melodically enjoyable, gets a lot of information in, and really sets a tone for a lot of things yeah. um, moving forward. Uh, yeah, I, I, but I agree with you on Light My Candle. I think I think that that scene is is great too. So. Uh, life support, that scene was added because, so, as I mentioned, Jonathan Larson did not come up with the idea. So, also, a couple of things I want to get out of the way so people stop perpetuating myths. Mm. Jonathan Larson did not die of AIDS. Oh, my God. He Can did you not believe people fucking think that? People think Jewish lasers are the reason for California wildfires. And by oh, people, I mean one person. But... <laughs> I can believe anything. It's easier to just think stuff than read, you know? Um, But he did not die of AIDS. He did not die on opening night. Mm -hmm. And he did not come up with the idea for Rent. He also did not completely write it on his own. Right. 
Let's just get all that out of the way. Yeah. He was a very smart, very talented man who had been struggling for a very long time. He died of a essentially a heart aneurysm, I believe. Yeah, Aneur- yeah an aneurysm. Yeah. yeah. And the, the tragedy of it is that it could have been cured. He was misdiagnosed twice in the week leading up to the first performance of Rent at New York Theater Workshop. And if and it, it's a hard thing to catch, especially because he, he he was young for having it. It's not it's very rare to have it at thirty five on your way to thirty six. Mm-hmm. But a simple CAT scan would have shown it, and he would have been given medicine and it would have been fine. But it went untreated, and he died. And it actually led to an investigation, and then uh, both hospitals that misdiagnosed him had to donate money, I guess, to the fund that Larson's family created for this disease. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. The person who came up with the idea for Rent was Billy Aronson. Uh, unclear exactly when this was, 89 or 90, I believe. But Billy Aronson was a playwright, and he apparently really loved opera, and he had gone to the Met to see La Boheme. Some of the best ideas for musicals come from writers seeing stuff at the Met. That's how Carrie the Musical came to be. <laughs> Jesus yeah, they they went to go see Lulu, I believe it was called. And they oh, wa- yeah. And I forgot who the composer of that is, but they walked out and like, if that composer were alive today, he'd do Carrie. Let's do Carrie. So Billy Aronson wanted to do a modern take of La Boheme mm-hmm. and went to Playwrights Horizons because they had done a lot of readings of his plays. Never a production, always readings. And they had worked with uh, Larson at that point, who had spent the better part of the 80s writing Superbia and getting... Uh, the Richard Rogers Genius Grant for it, I believe. No, that was for, he got it for rent, I think. Um, but he got the Richard Rogers Grant. Mm-hmm. Was it for? It might have been for Superbia. Yeah, no, it was for Superbia because he used the money to set up the workshop, and then the workshop never led to a production mm. for the reasons explained in Tick Tick Boom. And that's one of the things they got right. Uh, everyone who saw it said it's too big for off Broadway and it's too weird for Broadway. Like it's a perfect off Broadway show, but it costs too much money to put up. <clears throat> anyway, he had been working at Playwrights and uh, curating content and trying to, you know, make something happen there. And with both Aronson and Larson, they were, like, liking them both, just couldn't find anything for the to put up of theirs. And they connected the two. They're like, we think this could be a musical, and we want to connect you with Larson. The first thing that Larson said was he wanted it to be in the East Village. Apparently, Aronson wanted it to be on the Upper West Side. He also had the idea to call it Rent because he said it's a play on words. Mm-hmm. The three because rent also means to make money. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, the three songs they wrote were "Rent," "I Should Tell You," and "Santa Fe." Those were not the songs as we now know them. Mm. They were the titles. Some of those lyrics were in there. I and I think some of the music, but they were not completely fully formed. I think the I think from what I read in my brief uh, mm-hmm. research was that Santa Fe pretty much as intact as it was written okay it was sung by different characters but it was but the the lyrics and 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 the melody yeah pretty much remain intact also everybody was white originally even in the the reading yep well the characters were white. the actors were white Mm -hmm. characters did not change ethnicities i think until the first workshop right but even then i think daphne might have been the only person of color in that one of the only people of color in that well so so talking about this brings us back to life support um, eventually Aronson went off the project because he, he lost faith in it. And L- Larson, very generous person and gentleman that he was, sent Aronson a letter. He's like, I would like to continue with it, please. Was, Should anything come of it, 
your name will absolutely be on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, story by and any lyrics that I use will be credited to you. He goes and we'll figure out, um, you know, royalties if anything comes of it. Mm-hmm. But just note, like this is me writing in in print. You will get credit, and he does. He still does. But as Larson continued writing it, one of the things he really wanted to do was he wanted to make the show hopeful. Whereas La Boheme is sort of about these people who want to create and want to make art, but the world is just too cold and hard for them. And so they're literally like burning their art to stay alive. Right. And someone like Mimi is supposed to like just be too pure for this world. She can't survive in this crazy time. So she, does, <laughs> she, does, she dies of TB. And Larson was like, no, I don't like that. I want the world to have hope for me and my friends. And because he was, I guess, overall an optimistic guy, considering the fact that he had no success or no successes. He would define it at that point in his life. The only thing he had of any standing was his one man show that eventually would become Tick, Tick, Boom. And he would sort of go around playing it all the time. And that would get producers to be like, what you writing? And he's like, I'm writing this thing about Lava Wham. And that's how he would get readings and workshops and whatnot. But with uh, life support, what came about with that was he would sit on in his friends' AIDS, you know, support groups and whatnot, mm-hmm. and he would play some of the songs to his friends, and they were all very supportive. But then his friends would invite their friends, mm-hmm. and there was a mo- there were a couple of moments where people who did not really know him would sit in and listen on what he was working on and get very angry with him, and they would say, "You don't know what it's like." how dare you put sugar down my throat i'm dying right and so there are pieces in rent that acknowledge that but not quite enough i think life support does it best with what's his face who is like gordon who's like excuse you i can't with this today i think that section is so good yeah it's so good well it's also very concise for how much it covers yes well and i think I think really what it sh- what the what it shows is with the whole show, but that scene in in particular, and based on what Larson picked up from going to these meetings and talking to people who were who were suffering with AIDS mm. or, or or dealing with it or whatever you want to call it at the time, um, is that he really was an empath. Yeah, like he really did. He he was there because he cared and he wanted to. He wanted people to. Um, to have a voice and for the, uns- the unsung to be able to, you know, have have their information out there. Mm-hmm. How well he managed to do that in the end, I think, is debatable because, as as we've already said, there's a lot that's that's glazed over and missing. Um, but in the end, I th- I think had he been or been able to stay around, I think there are things that would have been rewritten or expanded a bit where stuff might have gotten explained or or made a little more sense yeah um in terms of representation well so all that yes the reason why life support works so well is because i think it's able to tap in and as you mentioned a very short amount of time a not as so like it's my brain is all over the place and i swear <laughs> i have i swear i have a point but like in Book of Mormon, they kind of come to the conclusion at the end of the show, like, all religions are insane, but you need something to give you some sense of order in this world mm-hmm. and something to get yourself out of bed in the morning. So for this support group, like, I'm, they don't – it's not like a cult where they're like, every day is beautiful. No day but today. There's only us. Um, forget regret. But it gives them something to latch on to. Mm-hmm. And then Gordon's like, I'm sorry. I can't today. 
Mm-hmm. No, bullshit. This is all bullshit. And the counselor acknowledges, you know, okay, well, how do you feel? And it's the best I've felt all year. I'm a New Yorker. Fear's my life. And then there's a moment and the music changes. And it doesn't feel unearned because it's not a total about face. It's just a slight letting go. It literally wrecks me every yeah. time. Well, also, I have, I'm from the same world of, the lyric is, I find, look, I find some of what you teach suspect because I'm used, used to relying on intellect, but I try to open up to what I don't know. Because reason says I should have died three years ago. First of all, fantastic lyric. But also, the idea of, like, I, tr- I tend to believe, trust in intelligence and scientific facts and data. It's why I always talk about I prefer the Happiness Project over Eat, Pray, Love because Gretchen Rubin's like, here's data on happiness. I'm like, yes, girl, <laughs> give me a task to do. But – Whereas um, there's a moment later on in Act One, <clears throat> is it before or after? No, it's uh, yeah, it's after support group because it's after uh, another day. Mm-hmm. Angel, Collins, and Mark are on the street, and Mark is you know filming everything like Mark do. They see cops about to most likely harass some homeless people, and mm-hmm. Mark uses his camera to get them on tape. So they don't. So they walk away. Smile for Ted Koppel, Officer Martin. Mm-hmm. And a Merry Christmas to your family. Um, and then instead of gratitude, like I think Mark expects, mm-hmm. the homeless woman eats him the fuck out. It's great. It's great. But the problem is that it's it's a moment where this homeless woman is basically like, my life is not for you to make art. You don't know what suffering is like. And again, something that Lindsay talks about. Everyone who's a main character in Rent is in poverty by their own choice. Mm. Everyone We learn they all have families that reach out to them, that have the means to provide them with things. They can always go back to, to people that they know who clearly care about them. I mean, they all have, you know, they're damaged or whatever, but no one was kicked out of the house. No one has no ties or anything, except maybe Angel. I had I had always sort of assumed with the with the angel character, just given you know what little we know about them that you know and especially within that day and age in the late eighties early nineties, a really effeminate gay boy in a Latino family mm-hmm. is probably gonna be ostracized if they're not immediately loved. So mm-hmm. I would I I had always sort of assumed that this was like a person who nowadays would probably end up at like the Ali Forney Center or something. Yeah. Yeah. But everyone else, Roger, Mark, Mimi, Joanne, mm. Maureen, I would assume. Yeah. Um, Collins probably even. Collins also, like, has jobs. Like, Collins, like, gets, like, MIT, man. And then NYU. Right. So, like, Collins has money, which I, I never understood why Collins was like, we couldn't pay. I'm like, you have a job. You get a paycheck. Um, and they, like, set up a suite at the plaza when angel was like really sick i suppose so i'm like you have like are you just that terrible with money that it's just all, you blow every paycheck you have the moment you get it anyway not the point but whereas lava M is about artists who the system has failed rent is about is about artists trying to defy the system and like choosing to live in squalor and that's not romantic when you have characters who are homeless because the system has failed them Mm. Not because they desire it, not because they think it makes them interesting. It's because they literally have no other choice. So you have Mark filming, and then this homeless woman being like, "Go fuck yourself! I, you don't, you don't get to do this." And rather than let that moment sink in for the characters, and they maybe they learn a little something, 
Angel, Colin, and Mark roll their eyes and they go, ugh, New York City, am I right? And it's like, no, you just got a very important life lesson. Right. God. <laughs> From a very eloquent... She's not necessarily eloquent. She is. I think she's... She is, she's to the point. That's what I mean. She's uh, eloquent. She says exactly what she needs to say. Okay, she's eloquent. She's not eloquent. Maybe she's eloquent and not eloquent. <laughs> no, eloquent is um, Drag Race. That's Michelle Visage. Right. And I would assume is a combination of eloquent and elegant. Mm. This homeless woman is not eloquent. She is not. She does not use beautifully curated words to make her point. No, she she's is, got no fucks left. Nope. 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 Not. Nope. She has taken her vocabulary and shoved it up your ass. Yeah. And I love her for it. She's an icon. Christmas bells are ringing. Christmas bells are ringing. Christmas bells are singing on TV at sex. Honest living, honest living, honest living, honest living, honest living. This is actually something that has recently bothered me as I've re-listened to Rent. So Maureen does her performance piece. Which isn't—it's—it's it's not a good piece. It's Pur- not purposely. So. I mean, oh, as written, no, purposely no, so. It, it's written to not be good. Uh, you know, Idina Menzel talked about this, I think, in their oral history, when she was talking to Jonathan Larson because they kind of created the piece together. And as uh, Thompson, what's her face, the dramaturg who eventually helped Larson, and we'll get to that later. But he was like, he what he told Idina Menzel was, you know, Maureen has watched all these really amazing performance artists who have a voice and identity. And she's copying the pieces she likes the most because she doesn't actually have ideas. She wants to have ideas. And I think it actually would have been really brave of him if, like, all of them were just bad at art. Like, it's what they wanted to do and none of them were actually good at it. Because in the end, I think none of them really are. But I think Roger and Mark are supposed to be good at it. Mm-hmm. But anyway... Maureen does her whole over the moon and spot cow and she says moo with me and it's for homeless people in this lot that is eventually going to get torn down and then they go off to the life cafe for like the after party and Joanne comes by and she, and she says you know they padlocked your building and now they're rioting uh, Benny called the cops and you know they're trying to clear out the lot so they can eventually she goes no one's leaving they're, they're just, just sitting, sitting there, there mooing. mooing and everyone goes success and everyone I go, goes yeah yeah. Yay! <laughs> Here's what bothers me about this. Freeze frame. <laughs> Yay! He started thinking of Anchorman, and they go, uh-huh. buy new suits. Yay! Uh-huh. And everyone goes, we did it! Exactly. Art, art saved the day. It's, but he, it's, it's uh, uh, who do you have to fuck to get a break in this town? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> AZT break. Yay! But so... Womp, womp. <laughs> womp, womp. But so, the reason, so everyone's like, yay, it worked. Art actually does make an impact. I wouldn't say that it's Maureen's performance that did it. I think they had something that they could sort of unite with, which was, remember when that chick was here an hour ago and told us all to moo? Let's just sit here and moo. But the people who are actually making a difference are the homeless people sitting there against the cops. Well, all the poverty characters celebrate with wine and beer that Angel's gonna have to pay for with her thousand dollars oh right inside 
Everyone else is warm and cozy inside in the live After cafe. After they've been asked not to come in. Because they never pay. And uh, and the movie has a bit where the waiter's like, don't put the tables together. Let's put these tables together. And I'm oh, like, yeah. you are the worst. You are all the worst. You're all just the fucking worst. The only thing I can equate it to is like a bunch of teenagers showing up to Denny's after their high school performance. And the waiters Friendlies, are all yeah. like, yep. And they're all like, come on, guys, let's sing the act one finale together. Maybe people will hear it and say we should go to Broadway. That's a, that is 100% yep. what Lovey Bohem is. God, I had this awful memory my freshman year of college. We did the freshman at Emerson used to, I don't know if they still do it used to perform and it was like the family weekend showcase. So, you know, the weekend where families of the freshmen get to come and see what everyone's up to. Mm-hmm. And then that weekend, uh, there's a performance on Saturday, two shows on Saturday, I think. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But it's a variety of songs or whatever. And they get a bunch of musical theater kids to do it, including the, all of the freshman class. And my year, our opening song was Start of Something New from High School Musical. Now, God. we did sound good, but that's not the point. The point is that we did our cast party, and it's Boston. Everything's close together on the tee, and we're all 18, 19, drunk off our asses on the tee, and we just acapella start singing, start as something new at the top of our lungs. It's like 11 o'clock at night, and I look back at that, and I go, we were awful. I hope somebody threw a glass bottle at you. <laughs> I wish. It was like six people. I feel so oh. bad about it now, and I wish one of them had the decency to throw something at our fucking child faces because we deserved it, <laughs> as does everyone in La Vie Bohème. Yeah. I'm just trying to enjoy my veggie burger or my pasta with meatless balls, and you have the audacity to stand on your table and talk about anorexia and dance? No. <laughs> Eating disorders. Good day. Dorothy and Toto did not go over the rainbow to blow up Auntie M. They went to Oz through circumstances that they had no control over. Dorothy wanted to go home that entire time. That entire time. How dare you rewrite history, Mimi and Mark? No time. No time at all. I guess this is a good moment to ask you, who's your least favorite character in Rent? And then your favorite character. Hmm. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Uh, Least favorite character... Well, for me, it's Mark, and it's ironic because that's the part I would ever play, and it's the part I most wanted to play as a kid. I think— Still do. I think it might be the same for me as an adult. Yeah. I love um, playing a villain. Mark the villain? Well, it's it's so interesting. Well, I— well, Yes. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's discuss this now. So, yes, I, th- I think Mark now is probably my least favorite character. Yeah. Um, mostly because I think that he could be helping a lot more than he is, and instead he's just like— you know trying to basically do reality tv yeah well also like again it's one thing if the show was aware of this and like was making a comment about it Mm. the show genuinely wants you to bleed for mark in the same way you're supposed to bleed for roger and mimi yeah Yeah. i'm like roger and mimi are insufferable in their own ways but i find them more compelling characters mark i'd find nothing compelling about i think yeah I, i but i think as a as an adult my favorite my favorite character Hmm. I think it, it, I don't know. It's, it's not me. I, I want to say Mimi, but it's not Mimi. No. I think it might actually be Maureen. Maureen's a lot of fun. As a human being, I think I have, I like Collins the most, mm. even though he doesn't use any of his technical computer skills for good in the world. He hotwires I mean, an ATM. If we're, if, I mean, if we're going based on like morale, and, you know, and sure. uh, people who have any, you know, I, I would say Benny is probably the best character well, in the so show. Well, so Benny 
is interesting. Again, re-listening to it, I'm like, the opportunities lost with the character of Benny of what his story is. Okay, so I texted Matt this morning at at, uh, at oh, 9 a.m. Is this what we're going to talk about now? Yes, I'm going to bring it up right now. I texted Matt at 9 this morning because I had a thought as I was, re- as I was revisiting Rent uh, last night, and... I was like, we have to talk about this, but I and I want, but I want to talk about it with you fresh, um, and so I'm telling you now, so we remember to talk about it later. Thank you. You 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 caused me to remember in, in bringing this up. So, this is jumping ahead in the show. So Angel's funeral, mm-hmm. after Angel's funeral, and after goodbye love, um, or maybe pre goodbye love in, within that scene, the um, Collins is tossed out of the church by the 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 priest the minister I don't know that's all a little messy <laughs> the company manager the company manager but <laughs> but Collins gets tossed out of the church by some person some 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 religious figure um, who has discovered that Angel is a drag queen and that the church doesn't condone that and yeah. so they've been kicked out of the, of the of the church and also that they couldn't pay for the service and right and then he says we couldn't pay we just found I just found out and I know I don't have the money to pay for the service. So in that moment, mm-hmm. Benny pays for the service. Yep. He says, I will take care of this for you. He and Collins have a little, like, back and forth, oh, we're rekindling our friendship moment mm-hmm. and leave. That is Benny's last moment in the show. Yes, it is. You're right. And then in the final scene of the show, Collins returns to let us know that he has um, totally um, – called Benny out and secretly behind his back told Allison that Benny is sleeping with Mimi, which then makes Allison pull Benny out of the East Village and out of doing anything to that location. Yeah. When Benny has financially helped them. Is Benny, has Allison kicked out Benny or has, or like, are they broken up? All she says is she's pulled Benny out of the East Village. Yeah. That's that's all that's So yeah, he might just be on a tighter leash now. Right. Yeah. So he's, but he's now, whatever was going on with the buildings yeah. is apparently no longer happening, but that's kind of yeah. also thrown to the wind. But it's, I just, my, my heart went out for Benny a little bit in that moment where I'm like, this dude paid for a funeral service mm-hmm. and seemed to reconnect with a friend in the moment. Yeah. And then Collins decided that it was more worth it to, for the building to keep or to keep them from doing anything to the building and the lot next door. Mm-hmm. So he ends up totally going behind Benny's back and and telling on him. I think it also I mean, the, I I don't I I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. <laughs> but then I think I'm I think another interpretation on... could be knowing that Mimi has AIDS. Right. And that Benny is sleeping with her and probably most likely also sleeping with Allison. First of all, to be cheating on his wife in general, no bueno. But also sure. to be sleeping with a woman who is – does have um, – would, would AIDS be considered an STI at this point or it would be a disease, I guess? It's a disease. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she's – at that point, she's living with AIDS. Yes. Right. And and and, so and, and, and is contract in, HIV from her. She could – yeah. Benny could contract it from her and possibly pass it off to Allison. Sure. And so that is a health concern. Do I, I think disagree. that? Do I think that what was going on in Collins's brain? I don't know. I wasn't there. But I'm just saying. I think if we really, 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 really wanted to continue liking Collins after all the things that Benny did for him, 
he could say, morally, I don't think it's okay. We have to tell Allison. And rather than Allison kicking Benny to the curb, she's like, well, we're no longer, you're no longer allowed to be in that area anymore. Sure. I hear all of these things. I'm just saying this falls into the category of what we were talking about earlier, where there's a lot of information that gets sure. glossed over. Yeah. And it was one of those things that, like, when I was younger watching this show, I was like, oh, Benny's an asshole because he wants them to leave their, yeah. you know, to, he wants to kick them out of their building. <laughs> yeah. He's asking for rent. Yeah. He he got rich and turned around, and now he's being an asshole. Yeah. And so, but but as an adult, I'm watching this, and I'm like, oh, you just paid for the fucking funeral. Yeah. And now you're going to go and, like, stab him in the back instead of at and least then pays a for, friend. And pays for Mimi's rehab. And Mimi's rehab. Thank you. And, it's, and instead, you're going to go behind his back instead of being like, dude, maybe stop seeing her. Yeah. And, like, it yeah. just seemed a little underhanded to me. Also, okay. I mean, also rigging the ATM to give cash to people. People who knew that it was A and GL. Rather than just rigging it to get cash and give to homeless people so they can maybe buy themselves meals right. or fresh clothes. I don't know. There are other things you can do than getting yourself cash so you can buy drinks for you and your friends <laughs> in honor of your dead partner. I don't think that's great. Anyway, um, what was I going to say? Oh, so the thing about Benny. And this comes into play. Okay, this is where we go back now to sort of the history of the show and how casting was all over, over the place. Again, everyone was originally white. Mm-hmm. Slowly, char- more characters started to become uh, racially diverse. And that was also partly because the people who were producing Rent and New York, the- New York Theater Workshop, where they just kept on doing readings and workshops over the years, because I think it was like a four-year development period, where they did like a reading, a workshop, two more readings, one last workshop, and then the performance. Mm. And over that time, somebody said to Jonathan Larson, dude, if this is about the East Village, it's got to look like the East Village. You have an entire principal company of white people. And the first person to change that was Daphne Ruben Vega, who played Mimi. And that was a point of contention as well. When she came in, uh, everyone but Larson was like, oh, absolutely. It's her. Like, she sounds, she looks it. And Larson wanted someone classically trained. Also, like, the way the score was going to be, even despite all the talk of, like, the rock sound and Larson wanted to bring in like modern day pop and rock to Broadway. He wanted it to also incorporate classical music as well. Like he, it was going to be much more right, musically he audacious. Full orchestra with a band. Yes. The original script, when he presented it to New York theater workshop in like 1992, the opening direction was there is a full orchestra right. and then a band on stage. Right. And they're like, interesting. So it was going to be like literally Lavo M meets Rocky Horror Show. Right. And that. I'd still like to hear that. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I'd be interested in that. The thing is that, like, I don't know how well it would have worked. It would have been more audacious for sure, but would it have been as focused and clean? I don't know. Oh, I, I'm, oh, sh- I'm sure it wouldn't yeah. have. Over time, I think the sound just con- got closer to rock. Mm. And th- I probably started with Daphne because the original, according to her, the demo she was given of Out Tonight for her callback was up the octave. Oh, Jesus. Sung by Larson's white soprano friend. Aha. And Daphne was like, no. So she did it <laughs> down the octave, and the woo, I think it was that was supposed to be sort of like a more coloratura thing, like, oh, tonight. And she was like, why don't we just make that a howl? You know, like it's supposed to be. And it's sometimes one of those things where, you know, when you're writing, it sounds so obvious now, but you're writing this big sprawling thing like Larson is, and the book is a mess, according to everybody. You can't see the forest or the trees. So something as simple as, you talk about howling. What if that awoo thing was actually a howl? And it's like, oh, yeah. That took me three years to realize. But so she got the job that way, and he was not really for it until, like, the moment they went up at New York Theater Workshop. And 
what's after she got cast it became more and more so i, I think jesse l martin was the last person cast for the show when it went to new york theater workshop like for 95 96 i think that's correct yes so anthony rapp was the first person of the original mm-hmm. company cast then it was daphne then i think wilson and freddie maybe mm-hmm. maybe don't quote me on this adina was cast in the final workshop before production as was adam and i don't know if jesse was cast for the workshop or if he was just cast for the production i don't remember yeah I don't remember. but originally collins was supposed to be white and they couldn't find a white actor they liked and then they found jesse and they liked jesse a lot but benny turning benny from a white actor to a black actor mr tay diggs which have, did you ever watch ugly betty there's a moment where Michael Yuri says to Vanessa Williams, like, mm, she's just like Tay Diggs. And Vanessa Williams goes, what do, what is it with white people and Tay Diggs? <laughs> like, <laughs> for a while, Tay Diggs was sort of like the go-to black actor that white people be, could be like, I'm not racist because I find Tay Diggs sexy. It's like, you're not, you're not special. He's objectively a sex on a stick man. Yeah. I mean, as someone who saw one of his few performances as Fiero in Wicked when he was in, when Norbert was out. Yeah, with for his, the three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can tell you that that ass in those white pants, Oof. holy mackerel. Well, you are an ass man. Was it, did you see a performance where he forgot the words? Not to my, Appa- not to my recollection. Apparently, no. of the, like, 20 performances he did, there were 10 where he'd be like, do-do-do-do, ba-loo-lee-la-da-shawdy-shaw. What do you forget? Got a light. I know you, you're, you're shivering. Nothing. They turned off my heat, and I'm just a little weak on my feet. Would you light my candle? But so, casting a black actor as Benny, who is someone who was from this world, whatever his original background was, we don't know. But right. he squatted with Maureen, Mark, and Roger, and Collins in this loft, and then got his way out. As a black man in America, it's always difficult to carve a space for yourself in a predominantly white capitalist culture. But to do so from a place of poverty, to do it by marrying into a wealthy white family, to then create your own business opportunities, to have to then, like, continue thriving. And on top of that, he's not trying to ignore his friends. He is trying to bring his friends along. Right. He's trying to make them understand, like, no, 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 you can't live like this forever. This is not sustainable. Right. And if you want to, he literally has the line, you want to produce and uh, produce films and write songs, you need some way to do it. You can't just have a dream. Money is there for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. And he's not wrong. And no. there's something, there's so much richness to explore that with a black character. By mm-hmm. making Benny go from white to black, without changing a word of dialogue, there's already so much more at stake. Mm-hmm. And it would have been great if Larson expanded on that. But no, Benny just has to be the stand-in for capitalism and doesn't he suck. Right. And the, and the thing is that sometimes he does, you know. Sometimes. In La Vivo. He's, he's not always the most eloquent of people he's when not it the comes most to dealing with. He also has one of my least favorite friends. lyrics of all times, which, which is, um, it's what we used to dream about, think twice before you poo-poo it. Oh, God. One of the worst lyrics of a very strong score. Uh, but any he's mostly an asshole when it comes to the Roger and Mimi shit because he and Mimi have the past right. and it's also very clear that he has he's not over Mimi something about Mimi and that magical vagina everything that it touches just can't get enough and just Benny comes on in and he's like I'm going to fuck things up for no reason for no gain there's no gain to it he just does it yeah when does he that's also not a clear moment like when he actually comes in to, I don't know first we he, we first find out that well they hint that uh, there might be something with Mimi other than the Cat Scratch Club because first right. Roger's like 
you look familiar, and then we find out it's because he used to see your dance. Right. And then in Chris's bells, Mark's like, I think we've met. Right. And Mimi's like, oh, that's what he said. And we're just left to assume that Mark also was at the Cat Scratch Club. But I have a feeling mm. Mark might have in passing seen Mimi in one of her dalliances with Benny. Because then what happens is in La Vie Bohème, when Benny sings his whole thing, yeah. and he's like, Mimi, I'm surprised. And we don't get any context. All we know is that they know each other. Right. And then there's a brief moment of the, we should discuss, it was three months ago, and that's all we get to know. Right. And then Hall, uh, Happy New Year, he comes in, and, and he starts, again, again, it's messy storytelling, because it's not clear who's lying about what, but when he when he padlocks their building, and they break in, in in Happy New Year, he shows up, and he's like, I he's like it's a shame you had to break in, I was literally here to give you the keys back. Uh-huh. And, and Mimi's like, why? And she's like, all grungy about it, he's like, because you came to my office yesterday and blew me. Um, which, <laughs> how much of it is a lie, we don't know. The truth, we do know that Mimi did come to his office yesterday. She Yes, she did go to speak to him to, yes. to ask. Yes. In how, one way or another. How wh- what, ha- what transpired, we don't know. Right. They both are capable of lying. Uh-huh. And so, but, but he isn't lying that she showed up. Right. He isn't lying that they had a past. And when right. oh right because she does not deny going to the office no she says and says I uh, she says that's not how you put it at all yesterday right and then also I was on my way to work black leather and lace uh huh I think I'm still sore because I kicked him and told him I was in his whore I have to say I Happy New Year one and two are also great songs there's, there's a so lot many of great little bits and yeah. pieces in those songs well what's one of your favorite moments when Maureen shows up in her leather cat outfit and Mark says. Oh, you can take the Hicks girl out of Hicksville. You can take the Hicksville out of the girl. No, 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 no. You're not doing it justice. You can take the girl out of Hicksville, but you can't take the Hicksville out of the girl. <laughs> I'm not here to do impressions, Matt. <laughs> it's just, it's so. Yeah, that's all I'm doing. No, but it's, it's, it's just, it's. No, it's I not know. that it's dramatic music. It's just very heavy for something I that's a, it. for something that's a joke. So it's, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, it's not an issue I have. But sometimes in Rent, there are moments where, like, because the music is so earnest or so big for a moment that's relatively small, you're like, that's a lot. Right. But I think that music also sounds sarcastic, which is what he's being in that moment. Sure. But then I guess I'm more arguing for the Roger stuff. A lot of Roger – and it's also Adam Pascal's, quote-unquote, acting. But a lot of his no's. No! I mean, Adam Pascal also – okay, first off. Stone cold bleached haired fox, so hot. Literally could do anything he wanted to make. So, Adam. Whew. Okay, yeah, I know. But that aside, also like this was his first show he'd ever been in, as far as we know. Like, yeah, he'd been in a band, but he had never been in a sh- in a in a musical or in a play of any kind, mm-hmm. to the best of anybody's knowledge. Mm-hmm. And he kind of has one volume level, so everything sounds pretty intense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no matter what the line. Is. I'm not a boyfriend. I don't care what she does. Yeah. Um, it's it's a it, yes. It is very intense, and as you said, it is his first, at the very least, his very first professional acting job. Sure. Uh, and that is something they talked about with casting as well. This was also also the show that established Bernie Pelosi as a casting director because mm. it's it, it was it was his first Broadway show. I don't yeah. know how much off Broadway he had done at that point, but as they were continuing with casting the workshops, it became very clear that they wanted grunge they wanted rock they wanted real they wanted everything to feel authentic so no we we want as few trained singers as possible right so rather than like going to college showcases and like open calls bernie tells would go to like clubs and nice spots and whatever and would pick people out so he, i think he saw like adam pascal performing with his band he right. saw adina menzel at a wedding or whatever and and that's how he got all those people 
Yeah, I mean, that's, to, to speak on the, the casting of this show, which I, I think is an important um, an important topic in terms of the 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 trajectory of it, especially as we're getting to the off Broadway opening, is yeah. the cast of this show like really is a massive part of what makes this show a success. Mm-hmm. This original cast, they and 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 it's true. I mean, I was I did I was I was reading my my rent book. I carry it with me everywhere I go. I was um, reading my rent book. I was reading my rent book. Got a life. Got a life. Uh, but they they really do they talk about how they wanted everybody to be to feel real and authentic and you know and like it was somebody that you could pick up from that neighborhood like it wasn't like you do like you weren't watching you know musical theater students yeah and um and i think they succeeded in that tenfold Mm -hmm. but what's even more amazing so to sort of address like again my age that i was when i when rent first came out i was like 15 or 16 mm-hmm. and when you're that age anybody who's over 20 is just an adult mm-hmm. you don't have a sense of like age like they're just older yeah do you know what i mean, I know, I know what you mean yeah. and when that show i still came, feel that way <laughs> yeah but that but when that show came out you know i didn't even have a full sense of i knew they were all young yeah ish but i but it's but i went back and reread the um there was a newsweek article that came out when that show when the show became a huge smash yeah before right before opening an article on of newsweek with uh daphne and, and adam, adam on, the, on cover. the cover yeah right but in the, but in it they uh they do really quick uh interviews with all of the principals mm-hmm. but they list all the all of the principals and their age is next to their name and it was so crazy to go back and see you know Anthony Rapp 24 Dina Menzel 24 Daphne yeah. Rubin Vega 26 Adam Pascal 25 i mean which i think it's i think it's something that i I go back and forth on this all the time where I think about like classic musical theater. Well, sorry, golden age musical theater. And Mm -hmm. you have like 18 year old Julie Andrews starring in the boyfriend and they're in like at 20 in my fair lady. We don't hear stories like that very often anymore. Yeah. Um, But, but, and and I mean, I know early, early to mid twenties is pretty normal to make a Broadway debut these days, Mm -hmm. but that seems, but, but just the fact that they were babies. Yeah at that time it's not just the fact that it's a broadway debut it's the In fact a massive yeah hit. it's 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 the, it's a cultural moment where they are at the forefront of it right um i think the last time we had a young cast without that happened to and it wasn't even a fraction of the same scale spring but awakening. yeah the original cast of spring awakening it was it was like yeah it, it was like a, it was like a modicum of what rent was. yes it's 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 the cast of spring awakening at the level of fame of the cast of friends that yes. kind of ensemble hugeness, but also the fact that like, but and what they look. But here's the thing about that cast, though. So the original cast of Ren, we look back at it now, like, oh my god, Adina Menzel, Daphne Rubin, Adam Pascal, we're like oh, these icons. Right. That wasn't really what happened. No. They were. They got very big very quickly because so the, the way that the history of Rent goes is, they were due to begin previews in January of 1996 at the New York Theater Workshop, and everyone felt very strong about the show they thought what they had was good it took a while to get there because larson was really bad at story structure really amazing at writing music he could write songs at the drop of a hat it took him until rehearsals to write take me or leave me i told you that a little bit tidbit that yeah, was fun he, he 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 thought a lot with collaborators because yes. he 
was just convinced that his he was correct in what yes. he was doing. Ultimately, and, ultimately, it was Stephen Sondheim who had to like talk him off the ledge and be like, "You want to make theater, you have to collaborate." Mm-hmm. It's like unless you want, it's like unless you. There was some like seventeenth century uh, composer he referenced. It was like unless you want to be like this dude who got like a duke to fund all the things he put up. Like, you have to collaborate, and you yeah. have to bend sometimes. Yeah. Because also, sometimes the other people have the better idea, and you won't know till you try it. Right. So the whole the whole sticking point with Rent for, like, the five years it was being developed at New York Theater Workshop was that everyone was super into the music, or most of the music, I should say. Yeah. Everyone was like, the script makes no sense. It, they're, they're like, no one knows who anybody is. No one knows what's fucking happening. And it took until the summer of 95 for Larson to finally bend because eventually what happened was Michael Greif was the director at this point. He had directed the last workshop mm-hmm. and helped shape some stuff. But like, even as a director, he could only go so far because Michael Greif's also not a writer. So he could only give notes for so long. And eventually the producers, uh, Jeffrey Selman, Jeff McCollum, who had come on early on uh, at an early workshop with Seller having seen Boho Days, the Larson one man show right. early on, like being an early champion of his. They basically all sat down, sat Larson down and like, we're either going to bring in a writer, like an actual book writer, or you can spend the summer with a dramaturg who will teach you how to do story structure. Mm-hmm. Which do you want? Because it's one or the other. So he opted for the dramaturg, who is, I think her name's Lynn Thompson. Uh, yeah, Lynn Thompson. I'm right. Yay, got me. You did it. And then also, by the way, um, Tim Weil, who is the music director and uh, mm. arranger and orchestrator, and was credited a great deal for making Rent sound like Rent and building a lot of the songs in a musical theater structure. Who also, by the way, married to Randy Graff. But hey. s- similar tune to um, the Square of Kinky Boots of how everyone – so hot tea, everybody, and I won't spill who I've been told this by, but numerous very valid sources have told me everyone on Broadway knows Stephen Aremus really wrote the score to Kinky Boots in the same way that What's-His-Face really wrote the score to the producers. In the sense that, like, Cindy Lauper wrote it, but, like, Cindy Lauper's not a Broadway writer. She doesn't understand, like, how you make a song build, how, like, sometimes the things need to end. Yeah, no, I'm, yes, no, that's, that's, that's totally true. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you can talk about collaboration. Like, yeah. they, yes, they collaborated very heavily on that show together. Yes. Steven understands how musicals work and how theater works. Right. And Cindy's, you know, a very brilliant individual, but also, like, she would come in and hear the song and she goes, it should sound more purple. And Stephen would have to be like, thanks, Cindy. He's like, okay, so measures 33 through 39, or we're going to increase here. And then he's like, that's what she means by purple. And they're like, got it. Mm-hmm. Um, but same thing with Tim and Larson. But so Thompson comes in and basically goes through the whole show with Larson, makes him like put the material aside. And he's like, and she's like, okay, who are our principal characters? What are their aims? What are they about? Mm-hmm. What are like the five questions you want to a- a- answer at the show? And then she was also there throughout the entire rehearsal process for the New York Theater Workshop production. And she w- was she the one who was really, um, really intense about um, working on the uh, Joanne Maureen relationship. Maybe. I know that the, there was there was a woman that he worked with at some point who was really adamant that that they w- that they not just come off as bitches. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think that was Thompson. It wasn't. I okay. think that was earlier. Oh, it was. Yes, there was another. He had another female friend who was sort of a, a somebody who helped him with a lot of his stuff. Yes. early on. Yes, yes, yes. I'm blanking on her name. Yes, but he. Was her. Th- that is the one thing I will say about Larson is he did pick on parts of his life and would talk to people about things he didn't know mm-hmm. to get insight on characters that were not him. Yeah. So, but so anyway, they 
they're rehearsing all throughout the winter of 95 going into January of 96 uh, and Larson's not feeling well he gets he sits through the final run through of the show and you know things are going well he's finally happy with Daphne from Vega like it took him until that final production to like be into her and he, and he's into everything else. He writes, Taking Your Leave Me for Adina and Freddie while they're in rehearsals because he couldn't crack the Joanne Maureen song. Mm, right. Every, apparently everything that he kept writing for them were like literally bitchy rants. And That's, yes. Yeah. And everybody, and they kept, he would kept on like playing it for them and they'd be like, no, a, like a, this isn't funny. And be like, isn't this supposed to be about like love? Even if it's toxic, like there's gotta be a love there. So he found it and they cracked it. The story that his sister tells is that the day he cracked it, he played, he would always play his songs to his sister on the phone before he would send it to the cast and he plays it for his sister. She's like, this is pretty good. And then he's, he goes off and then comes back and like calls his sister that night. She's like, what do they think? And he goes, ah, oh, they love me. Take me for what I But so they are ready to do their first preview and Larson's not feeling well. And they're like, they're doing, they were going to do like a, they were going to go out for a cast dinner and Larson wasn't feeling well. So he decides to go home after being interviewed for the times, his first big interview. Mm-hmm. And Anna Pascal talks about all the time where he's like, I feel so bad. He's like, the last thing I said about it was like, everyone was making a prayer for Jonathan at the table. Like guys, Jonathan can't be with us tonight. And Adam was like rolling his eyes going, God, these theater people. He's like, he's not dying. Like he like, there's like, he has a cold. He's going home. And he died that night in his home. His roommate found him very sudden. Everyone was shocked. And the story goes is that they were going to cancel the first preview. Yes. Mm -hmm. And his parents, Larson's parents showed up for the show and they asked them what they thought they should do. And they're like, no, absolutely do the show that's what jonathan would want and so they compromised they said we're gonna sing through the show where we're not gonna stage it it's just everyone's gonna sit in chairs, right, they and were in chairs. yeah yeah and then they got to la vie bohème and anthony rap stands up and just kind of starts performing it and then apparently daphne got up and started to dance and at that point everyone's like and everybody got on the table and yeah. everyone and everyone just did the choreography and yeah. so in intermission they go backstage and the stage managers it's it was the reverse of Sister Act 2, the stage manager said, your teacher says, put on your robes. Put on your robes. Put on your costumes. Your teacher says, take off your robes. In this, the stage manager was like, Michael says, put on your costumes. Put on your costumes. Put on your mic packs. We're doing Act 2. And they did. They do the rest of the show. There's a brief pause. Someone shouts, thank you, Jonathan Larson. Everyone erupts. And it becomes national news all over the place. Writer dies the night before his masterpiece goes up. And the reason why Larson was being interviewed for The Times was that it just so happened to coincide with the 100th anniversary of the premiere of La Boheme. So the music section of The Times was going to run this piece about, oh, and by the way, on the 100th anniversary, this thing inspired by La Boheme is coming out. Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. know that. Mm-hmm. My research is great. But so that, that, so that, that was what was going to run. And then they also ran, oh, and by the way, he died. And that just became national news. Immediately, tickets for the show were sold out and then the reviews come out and everyone talks about how they everyone questions would the show have been a success if larson hadn't died would the reviews have been as great if larson hadn't died and i was reading an interview with ben brantley about this and i think he also talked about it in his review when eventually went to broadway and he's like let me be very clear none of us went in there ready to love that show because we had heard rumblings from previews from workshops that it was rough like, this thing had been in develop- development for years, and our insiders all told us it's rough. Mm-hmm. 
And the last thing you want to do as a critic is when someone dies and it's their last show to be like, good effort. So, <laughs> like, we didn't go in being like, we're going to love it. We were like, oh, God, please don't suck. And they're like, and to all of our surprise, it didn't. In fact, we all thought it was pretty fantastic. Mm -hmm. So that was like, it was a sigh of relief. Mm -hmm. And all the Broadway critics, when it moved, when the critics reviewed it again for Broadway, they were a little more discerning. They were still very effusive with, with their praise. They all agreed that it was too big on Broadway. They're like, it's it, it's it's swallowed up in the Nederlander. But they were like, I will still say, the material is great and mm -hmm. the cast is great. That is what they left with, and. With those reviews, with the news about Larson, the thing just blew up. And then all of a sudden you get, similar to Chorus Line, you get these uh, writings in the Post and in the Times. Tom Cruise showed up and had to sit on the aisle because he couldn't get a seat, which is like what you hear about Chorus Line. Liza Minnelli had to stand in the back. She couldn't get a seat. Right. And so everyone's like, what the fuck? Tom Cruise couldn't get a seat to rent? He sat on the steps to watch this thing? And everyone was like, what What are we going to do? What are we going to do? It, everyone... Everyone wanted it to go to either Broadway or some big off-Broadway theater, like maybe like take over a ballroom or something. They eventually decided on Broadway, and they're like, it's never going to be hotter than it is right now. Move it now. Yep. And so cover of Newsweek, New York Times. Again, the the byline was every day rent has to be mentioned in some way. And it can't be about the, the fact that Jonathan died. Oh, and by the way, their last day of tech, Jonathan wins the Pulitzer while they're in tech on Broadway. So it's like – fuel to the fire right insane this is all to say 20 somethings everyone but anthony making their broadway debut mm -hmm. some of them not even broadway people you're on the cover of newsweek you're in the times you're in vanity fair <laughs> your show is the hottest thing in the country it's all anyone's talking about and you are at the front of it there is no i don't care who you are it's like what john mulaney talks about mcjagger like i'm sure mcjagger thinks he's nice his version of nice there it, right. it does something to you it does something to anyone yeah when you are at the top like that so quickly so young and you're like i think it is me i think i am the moment yes of course collectively we're all the ensemble but that entire company when they left rent and they were all in it for a year or so yep. daphne was the first to leave but she went right from broadway to the, to the tour, tour yeah. yeah um and then anthony was the last to leave but mm -hmm. and adina even said that none of them missed for the first six months of the Broadway run. They None of them called out. It was very important to them to keep it going, which is very – I love that integrity. It's it's two hands here. They all leave at some point. And really nobody but I would say Anthony and Daphne – well, and, and uh, Jesse, I suppose. But Jesse just got a job to do Law & Order. Like, he transitioned pretty quickly into TV. But, like, everyone else pretty much went, like, I think I'm a rock star. I think I'm a model. I think I'm the moment. When okay, wait, sorry, timeline. When yeah. Anthony, when Anthony finally left, did he? Was it? He, I know he, Adam, and Jesse, and did Wilson also open in London? Maybe, maybe. Because I think that might be why Anthony finally left was because the London production was opening, and so I know that he and Adam and Jesse were in it. But maybe Wilson did, also. I don't. Did. Wilson, I think, did as well. I think those were the four. Okay. Yeah. Um. When did London happen? London was ninety seven. 98? Uh, the first tour started in November of 96. Second tour, the Benny tour, was in 97. I think that's the one that Daphne opened. Mm. Um, no, it was, it was the Mimi tour. Or was it the Benny tour? It was, it was the, there was the Angel and the Benny tour. Those were the only oh, two tours. Oh, then it was the Benny tour. Yeah. Um, when, I don't know when London happened. I think London was 2000. Yeah, London, I think, was 2008. No, 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 you're right. 1998. I think London was 1998, where it opened the Shaftesbury Theater, and it ran for a year and a half. As opposed to the ten year, uh, twelve year, twelve year run on Broadway. Twelve by the time they closed. Ninety six to two thousand eight. 
okay. Twelve year run. There you go. Yeah, uh, twelve year run and very successful two national tours. That the other thing that's the difference between Rent and Hamilton as well is Hamilton has been a success everywhere it's gone. Mm. Rent has only really been a success in America, kind of Mexico, but mostly America. But but there have been like two revivals in the West End, three. There was the original Broadway production, yeah, which ran for a year and a half, yeah, which is not terrible, but compared to twelve years. And then there was Rent remixed in mm. two thousand and seven. Do right. you remember about Rent Remixed? I, I just remember photos, and everybody looked way too rich and pretty. Yeah, the whole thing looked like it took place on the set of American Psycho. Mm. And the whole vibe was that it was Kylie Minogue's stylist and collaborator was directing it and reorchestrating the whole thing. And so very different Ugh. sounds the entire time, but also, like, fucked around with the order of songs. So this is 2007. The movie had come out. So guess how the show opens now with Seasons of Love. Guess where Act 1 ends? Right after Christmas bells. It's Maureen going, Joanne, which way to the stage? Snow. Blackout intermission. Act 2 begins with Over the Moon, Into La Vie Boheme, and then going into Happy New Year. Yeah. And then other things got shifted around. Uh, I think they moved Tango Maureen later to Act 1. A lot of stuff. They did a whole lot of stuff. Weird. There was a ticker tape on the stage that just constantly was showing all the names of people who had died from AIDS. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Plus, the whole cast was older because they, I guess they cast a reality star as Maureen, but she was like 35. And they went, well, let's cast everyone else around 30, 35 to not make her seem so old. And they're like, well, now we're just seeing the movie on the set of American Psycho. That's kind of how old everyone was by the time the show closed on Broadway, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we'll get to the movie in a second. The point is, we were talking about the hotness of the show yeah. and immediately moving to Broadway, then winning the Pulitzer. Also, the turnaround from off-Broadway to Broadway, I, I think the fastest of any turnaround – uh, definitely of an off-Broadway musical. How how quick was it? Three weeks. Between, oh. They they closed at New York Theater Workshop and I believe started previews at the Nederlander within three weeks. Wow. And two of those weeks were tech. Wow. I would – well, since since we're not going to be talking about it on this podcast, I, I know that Spelling Bee had a super fast yeah. turnaround too. I think Spelling Maybe Bee – Maybe a might, month? I think a month. Yeah. It was – Fast. It was very fast. Like that was one that I remember. Like I just saw this at second stage. Now I'm in circle in the square. Yeah. What the fuck? Like <laughs> it was jarring. Yeah. That was just as to, to. I don't know why that made me giggle so hard, but I remember. I remember how quick that turnaround was. Everyone was like, "Oh Jesus, we're going was, for it." It was wild. Like, yeah. I just remember that. That was the first experience I'd ever had after moving to New York with something transferring. Yeah. And or at least transferring that fast. And I remember, like, having seen Spelling Bee a few times at second stage and loving it. And then it was like, oh, it's transferring to Circle in the Square. And everybody's like, amazing. And they're like, this season, everyone's like, huh? Yeah. And then all well, of a sudden, yeah. you're in this, like, and I just remember my first time seeing it. I was at the invited dress at mm-hmm. Circle in the Square and being like, they haven't figured out the sound yet. No. Well, that, it, it takes all Broadway shows, like, a week of previews. Sure, but when you're going from, like, a 300-seat, yeah. you know, uh, Kaiser, is it the Kaiser Theater? Yeah theater uh, for second stage into the freaking like, and proceeding into round yeah, proceeding into the three-quarter it round it was now. like oh this is this is tough. well the difference between like rent spelling bee and the other shows is that so like rent, all, any changes done to the text of rent was done in previews at new york theater, theater workshop and sure. it was mostly just trimming nothing was rewritten because right. they didn't want to uh overcorrect anything that larson had done right. out of respect even if they thought it needed work yeah well i mean it's because it's interesting though because the the so the video that's on of rent that's on youtube mm-hmm. that's, that's listed as the quote-unquote opening, opening night, night yeah i question because i wouldn't be surprised if it maybe is more like the first preview because there yeah. are some lyrics and a couple of cuts that are yeah. there that definitely Chris happened well, 
Christmas bells. Opening. Christmas bells is not complete yet. Well, There's, it's, it's complete, but the follow the man section is twice as long. Yeah. Um, and I also another, I, I I'm, con- I'm convinced that Freddie fucked up the lyrics at the end of La Vie Bohème. Oh, because she. She it, just forgot what she was saying. She was like, and I should say, they yeah. piled after building and they're riding on Avenue B. I'm like, that's yeah. not the lyric. That doesn't rhyme. Um, but but part then she of me, forgets the rest of it, too. Yeah, she's like, Benny, cops. It's, yeah. it's crazy. But, but no one's leaving. They're all mooing. Yeah. Yay! Yeah. No, I, 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 think she, I think she completely fucked up. She had a brain fart. Uh, but so I was saying earlier with that original company. Very hot, very much integral to the success of that show. Yep. Their voices, their energy, the roughness of it all. A lot of it also being shaped around some of those performers. But many of them come off the show and they kind of swan dive with their careers. Mm. The I think the two people who had the most immediate success post-Rent were Daphne and Jesse because they were able to transition into film and TV pretty quickly. Jesse got Law & Order pretty soon after Rent and Daphne was able to get some film roles. She's in yep. Wild Things where she's, Wild Things, yep. she's okay in. But... I mean, if you're not Denise or Nev, who cares? But, you know, they were able to get the most immediate film and TV work. Adina, nothing. Adam, nothing. Yeah, I, re- I remember, it, like, Adina had an album come out and no one cared. cared. She has and... one line in Kissing Jessica Stein. Adina, mm. a lot of those actors, what ended up happening, and then Wilson won the Tony. Won the and no- Tony and, and then nothing. Disappeared. Comes back to make the movie and does a couple of TV gigs, but that's it. Didn't he just do something recently, though? Maybe. Freddie also disappears. Oh yeah, I don't know what Freddie's deal is, but Freddie Walker, the original Joanne. But with when it comes to Adina and Adam, oh, and then Tay, so Tay also um, Tay also got success in film, uh, but really it was just how Stella got her groove back. He's the man candy, and how Stella got her groove back, and then kind of rides that for a while. Adam was in a movie. Adam does Road Trip, but that's around like 2001. Road Trip, no, but before that he did, it was like a, was it, it wasn't SLC Punk. It was something like that, though. It was like a, it was a movie about a rock band. Wait, Adam or Anthony? Adam. Oh, Adam. Oh, no, oh, no. yeah, Because An- Anthony's in Road Trip. Yeah, uh, sorry. Yeah, Adam. Adam. Yeah, Adam talks about this as well. Like, Adam, a lot of them had a lot of, not opportunities for necessarily jobs. Like, they weren't offered stuff, but they were, the door was open to them for Hollywood and TV. Mm-hmm. And only really those three, Daphne, Jesse, and Tay, were able to get a foot in the door. Jesse got very lucky. He pretty much got offered Law & Order and just stuck with it. Because Tay went – didn't Tay do Stella got her groove back, like, almost immediately? Yes, yeah. immediately afterwards. And that was very big for him, but I don't think much came of it afterwards because he goes back to theater, right? Like, he, I, don't, I don't see him in movies or, or – in major roles in movies or TV shows much after that. I think he does, like – a handful, but he doesn't become a movie star. For for someone who was the plot point of a very big cultural film, mm. he does not become a movie star. Yeah, I he, don't. I honestly don't remember now. It's been so long. But and and uh, this and this also connects to Chorus Line, which we'll talk about this more in the Chorus Line episode with that guest. But that company of you know, you're in the biggest thing. It's culturally relevant. Everyone knows your show, and a group of people know you, uh-huh. and. If you play your cards right, you can level uh, leverage that into bigger opportunities, and most of them can't, at least not immediately. Mm. And some of them are able to get oppor- uh, become bigger later on down the road. Same thing with Chorus Line. Some of those actors got bigger later on. But like Adina, we think of her as Adina Menzel now. She kind of came back to theater with her leg between her, or with her tail between her legs because she tried to become a rock star and it didn't happen. Because yeah, what was her her big return to theater was Aida Wild Party. 
Well, not that one. Say that was her big return. But was that, that was was Aida before Wild Party though. I, Aida, she did Aida after Wild Party. They opened the same season, but she oh, replaced okay. two years later. Okay, I wasn't sure how far yeah. in she did it. Oh, that's right. Because yeah, that was right. It, it was Sherry. It was Sherry Taylor than Adina, and yeah, and, and, and Aida is really I would say what kind of brought her back into like the community. Because mm. while people really liked and people in the community liked Wild Party. You didn't have the dueling wild parties. It was off Broadway. Not a lot of people saw it. Right. The the fandom for that grows over time. But that is sort of like her first, like, I'm back. And Aida, she gets to be on a Broadway stage again. Wicked is what Wicked really, was the juggernaut. Yeah, was oh, yeah. was the next juggernaut. But then Wicked as well. Like, Wicked's this big juggernaut. She gets to ride that for a bit. Tries to be a rock star again. Does another album that no one cares about. Yeah. Does Wicked in London. She gets to be an Enchanted. She gets to make the Rent movie. But that's – and then she's, like, guest starring in some TV shows on Glee, on whatever. Right. Frozen is the thing. Frozen's the yeah. one. It's when you really put together Rent, Wicked, and Frozen all combined. She now finally becomes Adina Menzel, and then the infamous Adele Dazeem really makes all of America go, her name is Adina Menzel. Right. And now she's a star. Yeah. But it took a long time. It took a lot of, like, here's your juggernaut. You missed your, you missed your window. Here's your next juggernaut. You missed your window. Yeah. It took the third juggernaut for her to be like, I know what to do now. Yeah, it's so it's 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 so interesting watching people's careers come off of something coming off of something as big as rent. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Well, and it, I don't know if I have anything to add to that other than no. that's just my sentiment. Like, no, absolutely. It really, it was but just... but you think about Adam, like Adam hot as balls, sings really well, well not the world's greatest actor, but like could have like helped usher in maybe more rock musicals. And been the One lead of, my of all of favorite them. Favorite MCs in cabaret. Interesting. He was great. I've seen the video. He was in the final cat. It was him and Susan Egan. Yeah, and they, they were, the were final. both great. Yeah. Again, Adam comes back to Broadway in Aida. Sort of. I mean, what a way to have your tail between your legs, right? Of like, oh, I guess I'll start as the Sorry, hot Milton John musical darn. for Disney that's going to run for four years, like right. or four and a half years. Like, poor me. But you know what I mean? As like a white Egyptian. <laughs> 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 there's a lot with Aida that you just kind of have to go it's not okay it's all right but it's not okay yeah. um it's yeah but you know he comes back with Aida and it's sort of like I tried to be a rock star I tried to be a movie star it didn't work out here I am back on Broadway and but it's once he sort of embraces the fact that he's a Broadway dude that he's like punk rock for Broadway yeah he like carves out his niche like and and Daphne as well like Daphne comes back with Rocky Horror and that does a bunch of plays does like Miz like yeah da- and working off broadway all the damn time all the time the, i feel like with those with a lot of that cast when they finally embrace the fact that like they their break was in theater a lot of their core audience knows them from theater mm. just embrace it yeah. and like be the punk rock of theater yeah be the cool be the coolest kid at that table that not everyone wants to be at yeah you know yeah no it's 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 just, it's pretty wild though when you look at how most of the people from of the of the original principles of that show yeah. have continued to have some level of success. Yeah, I mean Anthony's been on uh, Star Trek for the last four years, something like that. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it just but and he, he, I mean, he was still doing plenty of stuff. Anthony's never stopped working, and Anthony, I no. would also argue, was the most established of the cast when it because oh, he was totally a child was. actor. Yeah. Oh, I. Oh, that was when that when Rent originally opened. I was like, oh my god, it's the guy from Adventures in Babysitting. Yeah. How dare you? And one of those children from Six Degrees of Separation. Sure. And the Prince and the Prince and the Aviator, <laughs> that show that never opened. 
that I really wouldn't have known. No, Six I have that playbook. Separation, I didn't no. see until the, later. But. The, and the children in Six Degrees of Separation are not important. They're in for like five seconds. They're there to be assholes and leave. Yeah, but um, but no, like I, I mean, I vividly remember like him from uh, Adventures in Babysitting. It was it was so fun yeah. to be like, oh, it's the same person. Oh, weird. Yep. 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 You know what? Sorry, I was just thinking how Daphne Rubega is in the Sex and City movie, and her credit is like baby voice woman. She, it's, it's it's they're at the auction for that woman's jewelry, mm-hmm. and they're in the bathroom afterwards. And I think it's Charlotte saying like, you know, I thought this would be more fun, but it's kind of sad. And Daphne Rubega's like, I know, right? It's so sad. I thought. <laughs> My Daphne is just like a really sad Carmen. She's like, it's like I thought it'd be sad because I know her, but it is really sad, right? She was a really smart girl till she fell in love. And her credit is like woman with baby voice. So, with Rent, you know, a lot of the issues that people have with the show and with the characters are very valid, but it's hard to necessarily grasp what makes what makes those characters work when you're watching The Tenth Replacement Company. Not that those actors aren't good, but rather that, and, and this is sort of the danger of a long-running show, and something that Phantom was notoriously really good about was maintaining mm-hmm. and really keeping the spark of what made it so sp- special to begin with. And originally they wanted to keep with the whole grunge hard rock like let's not find musical theater performers let's find raw people and the thing about raw people is a lot of them don't have technique and they can't sing that way eight times a week and they can't act and they can't hit their marks so there's inconsistency and people call out and a lot of the really good ones find work in what it is they're wanting to do which yes. is be in bands and things yes. and they're 100%. like i don't want to be in a musical like, exactly and at that point after a while i'm sure rent developed some kind of stigma where people were like eye-rolly about it yeah where it's real like, rock people were like oh yeah, rent exactly i'm sure that the rock people who, who were approached about it were like nah, i don't want to do a musical thanks, yeah but no thanks and like it's a grueling schedule so they eventually yeah. had to go in with musical theater people to the extent that one Sutton foster was in final callbacks as a replacement maureen at one point i mean who knows at what point of her career i think it was around the time she was about to do uh, probably post Greece. Oh, it's absolutely post Greece. Well, well, Greece was before Rent, but Greece ran for a long time. Yes, I know, but I think she, she was in it like she, late in the run. She got in early in the tour and then went straight from tour to Broadway. I know because I read Hooked, but uh, <laughs> her memoir. But, I saw that Mission National tour too. Oh, that you did. You saw all the good national tours. You know who the youngest cast member? Of the I don't care. Was? Let's get back to Rent. Marissa Jarrett Winokur. Anyway, anyway, continue. but so. They went with, like, more musical theater types over time. Yeah. And the acting styles change. And so you watch that final company, and so many things that are played broadly for laughs are just not as interesting and not as good. But this is to say a lot of replacement people in the show also have major careers. Norbert Leo Butts, a replacement Roger, you know, two-time Tony winner. One of the famous stories is that Sherry Renee Scott was the first replacement of Maureen. Now, the story goes with this replacement. Sherry was only in it for about five months. There's, there's one really grainy, awful video of yeah. her doing Over the Moon on YouTube. And Take Me or Leave Me. And Take Me or Leave yeah. Me. She sounds great. She sounds amazing. Her Over the Moon is 
very funny, but it is exactly how you would expect Sherry Renee Scott to do it. Yeah. And it, this is, you know, one of those things. And I want to tie this into um, the fandom. Once I finish the story, let's talk about great the fandom of Ready. Ready. And then we also should probably talk about the show more because <laughs> we haven't we've talked about the show, but not a lot. You know? Yeah. We should talk more of like music and shit. Sure. <laughs> I'm on the ride, babe. Let's go. I I just, stop yelling at me. So God damn it, Matt. Stop it. This is a serious podcast. We have a network now. So um Sherry gets cast as the replacement Maureen. And the fandom goes ballistic. Because, first of all, how dare they replace Adina? Second of all, Adina's understudy. Christine Lee Kelly. And this, some of this is hearsay, but I have do have reputable sources. She, whether she was told she was going to replace Adina at one point, whether she just assumed she was going to get it, I don't know. But apparently there was a big kerfuffle that they did not promote from within, but rather cast someone from the outside. And how dare this outsider come in and ruin the world? Now, that's just the toxic teenage fandom. Apparently, according to Sherry, inside the theater was not so nice as well. Not a, not the entire company had changed yet. I think only a handful of principals had left, and some of the, and a lot of the ensemble was still there. It was probably, yeah, it was probably like half and half at that yeah. point. Um, and some were very kind to her. I would assume most of the principals. She says that she and Jesse have become very good friends since then. But that a lot of people, both in the company and then backstage, like in the production side, were not happy to have her there. Because at that point, they become this family. And how dare someone from NASA come and ruin your family? Which is weird, because she wasn't the first replacement in that cast, but she was the first Maureen. Anyway, they didn't, play, they didn't promote from within. She was an outsider. Her first performance as Maureen, she comes on to do Over the Moon. And it's immediately different from Adina's, because Adina's, you know, very earnest, bold, wacky. Sherry is a deadpan motherfucker. It's what makes her so brilliant at so much kind of comedy. It's like why she should always do Durang because she can play straight faced and get a laugh like nobody's business. So her Maureen was a little more like not dumb blonde, but like did a lot of reading and thought she was smarter than she was. Mm. So she played it like she was smart, but she wasn't or not, not as intelligent as she thought she was. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so already fandom was not having it. And when she does her moo with me, they weren't supposed to moo. What does the first two rows of the audience do? They boo her instead. And the, and the first two rows are important because Rent started a new trend with its rush. Rent was not the first Broadway show to do rush, I think. I think that might have been uh, – I want to say Secret Garden, but that may, I'm sure that's wrong. I don't know. I don't know, but it was the first. it was the first Broadway show that I ever heard of where it was a thing. Yes, it was a thing. They might have been the first Broadway show to do a lottery. Because the because mm -hmm. the rush got so insane, people were camping up out overnight, right? And some people were getting robbed. People which, were having sex on the sidewalk, which amazing. <laughs> but, but again, to tie this into when you're comparing something to the phenomenon of Hamilton, Hamilton mm -hmm. similarly had an in person lottery. The the um, the what do they call it? The ham for ham. Ham for ham. Yeah, and. But that got so insane by six months in, in the middle of winter, yeah. that they started doing it digitally. Yep. And now every fucking show does a digital lottery, which ruins everybody's chances of winning. Absolutely. Because people from, like, Connecticut enter the day before and then will come in from out of town. I don't even – oh, I don't even get started on digital lotteries. They make me so mad. Listen. I used to win every lottery I went to in person. I'm not even exaggerating. I'm sure you're not. 
I, I, there's also a sense of occasion of it being in person. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, well, and you're, and you're, you're also rewarding the people who do the footwork to get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I, you can like click a button in the morning from. Listen, as someone who has won a few digital lotteries, but also have lost a bunch of them. Same. I'm, I am of two minds. I understand, but also I think there should be, I don't know. I also think it, it just, a half and half. it also, a half for half. Uh, it helps, but it helps with, with promo because yep. that's the thing with rent. Like what helped keep rent in the news and what made it even more of a phenomenon Fans. was they, because the story goes that seller McCollum tell is that in Brantley's review for the Broadway production, he was like, the top ticket price is a whopping $69. Oh, the old days. But remember when producers broke a hundred and everybody's like, go fuck yourself. Producers. Well, we have producers to blame for premium seating. Because that didn't used to be a thing. Right. But th- that was – was that the first Broadway show to break 100 on ticket price? Yes. Oof. Yes. But but then – Now you're lucky if you can get a ticket for $100. I know. But then producers also did, like, select seats in the mezzanine and, and orchestra are now, like, 200 They They started the premium, the premium pricing. Yeah, yeah. Which I hate. But uh, they read that and, like, it doesn't seem right that, like, only the elite now can go see Rent, which was going to be the majority of the case anyway. Right. Uh, something that Lindsay Ellis also talks about. Ah, the irony of Rent. Yep. Uh-huh. But so – they decided to do a rush mm. where the first two rows of the theater were for people who uh, paid the uh, rush tickets. And what made that different? 20 bucks when it started? Maybe. I think 20. 25? No, not 25. I think 20. 20. But what made that different from everything else is most rush seats, and it's still that to this day, but rush seats used to be like back row of the mezzanine, wherever. Because like, right. uh, they were talking about, oh, Miss Saigon did a rush. Mm. But r- the rush for Miss Saigon was the last two rows of the Broadway. So it was like, you're just lucky. Yeah, like, you're lucky. You're even here. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. And Ren was like, no, let's put them in the front because uh, they want to be there. Their energy is going to help, you know, keep the cast engaged. Yeah. But then that also goes into toxic fandom, which, again, we'll get to in a hot second. So Sherry gets booed on her first night, gets booed a couple more times since then. And the booing of the Rent heads, in addition to the toxicity backstage, made Sherry Renee Scott leave after five months in what was probably supposed to be a year-long contract. So it's not all sunshine, rainbows, and love at Rent, you guys. Just saying. <laughs> um. One of the big things we now have to talk about is the rent head. The legacy of the rent head. If there is one real thing that I think rent has as a legacy, it is Broadway fandom as we know it today. Yeah. The ushering in of fandom message boards, of toxic fandom, of treating your favorite performers in the roles like gods, of ranking and comparing different performers, of stalking. Mm-hmm. of crossing the boundaries yep uh i would argue rent was really the first to do that because something that jonathan larson really wanted to do something he wasn't seeing in the 80s when he was coming up in the city was that the big mega musicals were not appealing to the younger crowd it was all for the elite it was all for the reaganites which is not totally wrong although kids do love les Mis and phantom and all that shit too but he's like they don't have a show that appeals to them we don't have our hair we don't have our chorus line we need that we need to get youth into the theater which is exactly what rent did yeah with a price yep let's talk about that price baby well i mean part of it came with the beginning of like so so rent and the internet kind of went hand in hand yep um because i remember uh you know we didn't have internet in my house until i was 18 so I remember being like my freshman sophomore year of high school. I would go to the library to use their internet computer. Oh no! And what would I look up? Broadway show websites, which were janky. Some of them still are, but these ones were really janky. Yeah. And I but blue but, on green. Why? But 
when you would you know i, I don't even know what search engine engine you would even use at that point it, it wasn't google it was like probably like ask jeeves or something along those lines right um but when you would search rent which i would do you would more often than not be directed to message boards um and that was and that was where and it still exists they still exist to this day but that was the rent rent and that whole time period were the beginning of the broadway message board and the intense broadway fandom yep rent would rent possibly be the first show to have a online message board about it i'd have to imagine it might have been because like the internet message board culture well, I guess we have ch- chat rooms would probably be the beginning of what of message boards, right? I'm not. What are the, what's the history of message boards? Is it chat rooms and message boards? Well, I think they kind of went hand in hand. I don't have. I, I'm, as old as I am. I don't have. <laughs> I don't have all that full, all, all the full information. I I think. I Where's think Meg that, Ryan? She'll know. God, that bitch knows everything. Um, secrets in her lips. Um, the. But and no, Goldie Hawn. Th- but I. I, I think I, I I would I would say that they probably went hand in hand to yeah. some degree. I think message boards probably might have been a little bit before okay. chats, just because they didn't require the um a, like a live stream. Well, I guess yeah, you're right because I guess chats are more sort of they were um like a cousin to IMing, and IMing yes. was later in the game. Yes, IMing came initially with AOL. Yeah. Um and like but AOL chat rooms were always a thing. So there probably were like Broadway chat rooms in AOL. Okay. But as but like message boards themselves mm. I think w- were probably a, par- a a thing simultaneously or shortly before mm-hmm. like IMing and 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 uh, chat rooms. Yeah. It's it's so interesting. So like with well what's another thing that's so amazing to when you when you look back at rent now um Oh, and this will go hand in hand with the fandom as well. Is that Rent is a show where there are a few people that use cell phones, but most phone messages are on old, old, old fashioned answering machines left Speak. by their parents. Um, and the well, one of the things that over time that Rent because Rent heads got younger and younger. Yeah. Um. I think it was besides cast the cast um you know maybe not being given full insight as far as what the character originally was and whatnot there were people were getting as as the crowds were getting younger and the show was getting older the people going to see the show were also too young to have experienced the aids epidemic Mm -hmm. or or at least closely experience it so there's a lot of stuff in the show. I mean, AZT break, all of that stuff even changed within a couple of years of the show opening. Like AZT wasn't a, a thing anymore. Yeah. So there were there were parts of the show that dated themselves within a couple of years of it opening and made it immediately sort of like a like a historical touchstone of a piece. Um, but I, you know, I I think after a while the fans sort of ended up having. T- I, th- I think a lot of the younger fans just connected to the fact that they were like young struggling artists mm-hmm. and sort of lost sight of like the true um, danger and uh, and uh, and real death that the show was based around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I because I think that that was probably part of the other thing of what made the original production when it came out so like of the moment and exciting and 
dangerous and real was that it, it really was sort of a time capsule in of that moment like it just like two years before three years before on mtv we'd watched pedro on the real world who had who died of aids like i think maybe while the season was still airing yeah you know and and, and it was stuff that you know younger people were you know had been exposed to in of that time but then you like as the show is running even six years kids who were you know nine or ten when rent opened and then discovered it six years later when they're 16 weren't watching the real world and weren't watching mtv or the news and didn't have that same connection to those moments yeah it's the thing about the rent fandom and this is really what is telling about all of this and and with broadway fandom in general no one who is a teenager and a fan of rent really was who the show is about if that makes sense or at least you're 100 percent right yeah it's or i should say if they were and we keep on hinting at miss at miss ellis if you're nasty and we will absolutely talk a bit about her video as we continue discussing the show itself more but she talks about, you know, when she went to NYU in the early 2000s and Rent was still on Broadway, it was it was no longer like the must-see show, but it was still halfway through its 12-year run. So it was still doing fine. And the oh, fandom yeah, was, was still a thing. Yeah, and the fandom was still very strong. And especially if you were going to school at NYU, which is in the East Village, yep. you know, all, we have all these kids, many of whom come from well-off families or upper upper middle class families going to see rent for the 10th time and going oh it me and she's like yeah i guess it is trust fund baby because that is sort of the thing about the mark and the roger and the joannes that we talked about were like they have families they can go to the system has not failed them they are choosing to rebel which listen you want you see the world and you want to make change that's great you want to make art that's great but don't act like you're a martyr for doing so i have to back up yeah with with character analysis though and you, i i think maybe not my favorite character i have to say joanne is the least person at fault in the show joanne she's always doing no. her thing she's yeah. being a very supportive partner to maureen but she's oh well yeah keep going keep going keep but going I, i'm just i'm just saying like she doesn't stray from her day job as much like her parents yeah. her parents want her to be more old school like they are jo- joanne comes from an actual upper class family an, uh, an upper class black family yes 100 percent. and th- and so they very much want her to you know hold on to that upper echelon of that establishment yeah. well it's like we've worked so hard to get here like how what and i and i it. think i think it's safe to say that joanne is probably wanting to be a lawyer for people who are a little more downtrodden yeah but i don't but i would say that in terms of like her as a character she always kind of she manages to hold her uh, respectability throughout the show. Joanne is the only actual adult in this show, I would say. Uh, Her biggest stumbling block is her relationship with Maureen, which is, you know, just the fact that... She's under her sexual powers. (laughs) Well, it's... There is something, and I really don't mean to generalize here. I'm only going off of, like, my the female friends that I have in my life who I speak to about their relationships. And then in terms of like something that I recently have gone through and anytime I've talked to like them about it, their minds are just very solid about like what is right, what is wrong. And like what you were owed when someone has wronged you rather than like having grace for the person you care about and like bending and, and knowing when you can break. Joanne feels very wronged by Maureen at the end of act one. And then basically uses that to punish her for a lot of act two if that makes sense Mm -hmm. not like in a 
super cruel way, but more in like microaggression kind of ways, which is human. People are there are people who do that. Right. So it's not that like I. This is my way of saying like I agree with you. I think Joanne is the biggest adult in the show. I think there's a lot to recommend towards her more so than Collins. Uh, where and then Angel is just like in my opinion just a little too martyrdom a little too ryan murphy is the gays die for our sins but right it's there's a lot with angel of her always trying to stop the fights that are going on and be like and saying the one nice thing that like makes everyone come together and right. the and angel is the light angel all killed, the angel killed a dog let's just remain let's just remember well what's his what's his face killed a parrot in Lobo m so it's where it's where it's at i know and benny hated that dog and whatever it sounds like that dog was possessed by satan anyway and also angel did not technically kill the dog angel drove it crazy yes angel (laughs) created a circumstance that the dog died in The majority of the main characters have a family support system mm. that I would not necessarily they can like fall back on. But like we at least know they're not alone in this world, right? Like right. they are choosing to live this way, and which is we go back into that issue where we talk about like with the moment with the homeless woman, where it's like there's there is an interesting commentary one could make with with this. That I don't think Rent does, and part of that is I think that would require Jonathan Larson to look inward on himself of, like, you know, who am I to complain about not afford- being able to afford food this week when, like, I chose this lifestyle and there are people that actually can't and never will be able to get out of right. the situation they're in. Sure. That, like, that requires a kind of introspection that could just make you want to jump off the Tappan Zee Bridge. But <laughs> so I understand why maybe he didn't want to go fully into that, especially if he is, if he was an empath that kind of way, right? And, and rent is ultimately uh, a hopeful tale and it can only be hopeful if the characters you know aren't completely held to task if that makes sense sure but so what i'm saying is like you talk about rent seeming dangerous when it came out when you were younger yeah and i think rent only seems dangerous to those of us who have a comfortable home life you know like sure where it's it's it, it seems like a dangerous world to us when it's something we don't know much about and then the more you know it and the more you experience it the less dangerous rent seems yes i mean i guess i i guess my point yes yes to that and also i think that you know there was there was a point i mean at that point in time the east village was a more dangerous place and sure and broadway hadn't seen a musical like this before so this was I'm not I'm not talking about the show itself. I'm talking about in connection to the fandom of like the of the kids who gravitated towards that was, Ryan. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. I am I'm, I'm just saying in terms of what I when I was saying dangerous, I think it, it was just more it was an edginess that Broadway hadn't seen in quite a while in a new musical. Sure. And so and I think kids were connecting to that edginess. Yeah. So when the movie came out <laughs> and well so we also we do have to talk a bit about like the movie, the live TV thing, because sure. it all it all ties into fandom, fandom, and also the shelf life of this show, mm. of the of the double edged sword of when your show is so of the moment, yeah, 
you know, my dad and I talk about, you know, Promises, Promises was so up to date in 1968 that it was dated two weeks after it opened. <laughs> and that's the problem with something is so up to date, so of a time capsule that, like, it's really difficult to come back and capture that lightning in a bottle. But this brings me to the movie for a quick second where uh, back when I was an active poster on Broadway World, I remember everyone's excitement for the Rent movie coming out, which, in fairness... The teaser looked nice because movie musicals tend to make good trailers. Yes. The music is epic. They show you a lot of clips in a montage. It's very Mark's final movie. Clips of, the, of uh, uh, clips in a montage to one big song and you go, this is going to be epic. But you don't see everything in context. And the first person on Broadway World who saw the movie at a private screening and then wrote a review of it. Maybe it wasn't the exact voice. I can't remember. But someone wrote this review. They opened it with a story of when they were living in the East Village. And it was a, they were like having lunch at some spot in the East Village during the day. And a man was shooting up on the sidewalk, like sitting on the sidewalk, and a drag queen was roller skating by. And the man was in the way and tripped the drag queen accidentally, who fell, started shouting bloody murder at this man, who then offered her a small bag of heroin. She stopped talking, grabbed it, and skated away. And he was like, and that was before my sandwich arrived. <laughs> and he's like he's like the rent of state uh, like the stage rent kind of captures that world the movie rent captures none of it and it's it says something that like at 15 when i saw that movie i was like oh my god they did it they captured it all it's brilliant <laughs> this is no slight to the children of the world did you really love it when it came out? I did. I went to I went to an, I went to a screening at I went to a I was actually it was the premiere. I actually went to the movie premiere. For, I don't know how I got in, but I got into the movie premiere That's at adorable. the Ziegfeld Theater. That's adorable. And fifteen year old me and my, my friend Jessica afterwards were like, they did it. They figured <laughs> it out. They did it. And but like I felt this. I would have loved to have had a conversation with you right after I left oh, the sure, movie. I'm <laughs> sure. But like I said the same thing about the Phantom movie. You know when it first came out. Sure. Part of it is it took me until I was about 19 to stop being just so pumped for a new movie musical coming out. And I knew I realized by high, senior year of high school, I had to see a movie musical three times to figure out if I actually thought it was good. I mean, I'll be honest. I have a feeling that if I if that movie came out when I was in high school, if Rent came out, the, the movie came yeah. out when I was in high school, I probably would have also felt well, similarly. They, most of them were older and it wasn't as dangerous. A lot of them got prettier. Adina got prettier. Uh, sure. hot as Daphne Rubenbeck is like Rosario Dawson is a movie star like for a reason everyone was just like more Hollywood everything was streamlined everything was prettier to look at everything was safer to look at mm. and so it was a very easy to swallow movie at the time and for 15 year old me who had you know never seen another grown man's erection before I was like this is sexual and, and energetic and dangerous there were erections in the movie of Rent no but you know, no you're talking about like I I'm talking about how like me and my tiny world of what sex and danger meant. So we got to see Adam Pascal's erection in the movie Rent. Okay, and yeah, it was a cut scene during talking. One song, glory, one song, glory hole. Um, <laughs> it's a glory hole that lasts for one song. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It's stupid. <laughs> the whole thing is stupid. But so this is. I'm saying all this because like a lot of the teenage kids at the time like also super into it and mm. of that movie and of the show and all that stuff like. It was dangerous to us who didn't actually know what danger was. Right. And we thought we were special. We thought we were different. And this, I don't mean this as a slight to all 
teenage fans out there. I was a teenage fan. You were a teenage fan. We just had a lovely review from a teenage fan in Alaska. Jackson, you're awesome. We love you. If at 14 you feel like you can fully decipher the contents of a musical, the musical's not that deep. Because at 14, your bra- not only is your brain fully formed yet, you have not read or experienced enough in the world to have that insightful a take, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. I say this to someone who is – and much as I deep dive, like, there are things that jump out at me later in life as well, you know? There are things that I notice in listening to recording – cast recordings, seeing films, mm-hmm. like, you know, that, that, I've, that I've loved for a long time and revisit and go, oh, my God. How did I not get that before? Yeah. How did I, or you know, how did I miss X Y Z? Yeah. I mean, the true, truly good thing, or maybe not even truly good things, but things that are a little deeper than surface level, really can continue to. There's a certain kind of masterwork in art of any medium and any genre. Like, it, mm. I'm not just talking about like a rock Rachmaninoff piece, like you know, fucking something like Mean Girls the movie, or you know, uh, a teeny bopper song, whatever. Like. If someone is really fantastic at what they do, no matter the genre or style, whatever, what it does is it immediately leaves you with a feeling, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. that you can hold on to. And then when you go back to experience it again, if the feeling's not as huge as the first time, you find details to discover that give you ex- even more excitement than the first time. Yeah. Something like Sweeney Todd, right? You see it for the first time and you're fucking bowled over, unless you're my grandparents. And you just go, Jesus Christ, that was insane. That was brilliant. And then, like, the more times you listen to it, the more times you pour over the lyrics and you listen to the motifs and how everything repeats, you go, holy shit. Like, there's that video about Sweeney Todd, the movie, which I've gone direct to say how much I love. But, you know, this movie guy who's like, if you listen to the score and the underscoring, like, every spoiler of the story is told in the first five minutes. Mm. And it's and it's true. But you don't realize that the first time you're watching. You're too invested. You're too blown away by everything else. Sure. And some things don't hold up as well under scrutiny. Or some things, the older you get, you see the flaws. And it, you can maybe start to hold a nostalgic place for it in your heart. But you don't realize, you don't recognize it as the masterpiece you once did. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. Which is what brings us back to the fandom of Rent. Which is, I think, the first Broadway fandom to be cult-like. I don't think I'm going too far to say that. Not just not about the fact that like rent heads have the sort of had like a cult like mentality. Not Phantom fans. No, because I think Phantom fans were a little more respectful, like intense as well, like very. But we're also it's Phantom fans. When Phantom began, the fandom was the elite or like the upper class or upper middle class. Sure. And again, not to generalize, but this is true because of how commercial Broadway works especially in the late 80s when it was, you know, Reaganomics, reigning supreme. It was wealthier, mostly white people. Right. A lot of women Who, fangirling over Michael Crawford. Right. That was how the Phantom fandom began. Right, because they, they made him into a sex object. Somehow they managed to do that. And then Le, the Les Mis fandom was also like a little – Les Mis fandom, when it came out, wasn't rabid. It was weirdly cultural, like – Les Mis was considered, like, the thinking man's mega musical. Mm. Like, it was still commercial. It was big. It was huge. But that was the one where it's like, well, it's based off of a French book, and it's three and a half hours long. So and is Phantom. 
but Phantom's pulp. The, the, sure, that's true. Not yeah. a Victor Hugo novel. That's true. That, yes, Le- yeah. Le Mis is based on a novel, whereas yeah. Phantom is, is a, more an internationally recognized masterwork. Whereas sure. Phantom was a scrap together p- serial it's, piece. It's, you're right. It is pulp fiction. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah, one hundred percent. Totally. Um, but yeah, like, so those fandoms were big and they were rabid, but they were not, or not rabid. They were big and they were, you know, beloved, but they were not insane. Right. The Rentheads was a very different kind of culture. Yes. Um, where, because it also wasn't, or supposed to Phantom, where it was like, it was mostly just Michael and Les Mis, it was about the work, right? It was about the work and it was about the cast and it was about, you know, writing the song lyrics on your arms during math class and getting a tattoo of it on your ass and having a wall dedicated to a Dina Menzel in your locker and blah, 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 blah. Right. Coming to see it 90 times because it was also younger. It was a younger crowd. Yeah. No, it was, it was a very intense fandom and it kind of, it was one of those it was it, w- it was a fandom that soured me on the show yeah at a like at a not too old age like it was because it was one of those shows where you know it came out my freshman like I've, I've said a million times my freshman year of high school I would say that by my senior year of high school I didn't want to hear it anymore yeah not because I didn't like it anymore but because too many people had taken ownership of it mm-hmm. in a way that I didn't like. It's one of the reasons I can't stand when everybody in a room starts singing, um, like, Disney songs together. If I hear a group of people start to sing Part of Your World together, I will leave the room. No, that's, that's my song. I, that's my song, that, people. That, but that's how I feel when I'm in a room and everyone starts singing Seasons of Love. Yeah. But I. But that said, it's kind of incredible how that is a song that even if you roll your eyes and go, oh, by the time they get to that first chorus, mm-hmm. everyone knows what their harmony line on love yeah. is. And you're like, oh, here and here, here we're singing it. And and effective is effective. Yes. Effective is effective is yes. effective. Um, but that said, I will say that the, it, it did, that show did, the show eventually did go to a level of fandom where I was like, I'm not interested in this part of all of this. No. This is getting... I don't. I, all these people are claiming that this is their show, and it's like, I just like the show. Yeah, the ownership of it is. The, there's one. This is the thing that I've been talking about a lot with like current Broadway fandom, and what I don't understand. Where people who call themselves Broadway fans, and I'm like, no, you become obsessed with one specific show per year, or a specific person in a specific show. That too. And what you know, you're not a Broadway fan if you've seen Beetlejuice sixty times, but you can't name me a single Sondheim song. Right. That's not a you're not a Broadway fan. You like Beetlejuice, right? Um, which is fine. Like like Beetlejuice, but I'm also sitting here going, you know, life's short. It's long and it's short at the same time. Go see another show. Well, there's there's so much to experience. Like you you're never gonna become better seeing one thing a million times. Right. The show I've seen the most on Broadway was Fun Home, and that wasn't because I was so obsessed with that. I was like, this is my show, but because I am a stone cold cunt, and I have a high bar for what I consider to be excellence on Broadway. And I saw – I remember – I saw Fun Home at the Public, and I thought it was brilliant. And then I saw it on Broadway, and this was – I had the same thought I had when the Red movie came out, but this time it was justified. I was like, they did it. They made this even better. Mm. And I said to myself I, – I remember seeing the final preview of Fun Home, second row, and I said to myself, I'm going to see the show multiple times because I don't know the next time I'm going to see something I think is this good ever again. I wasn't lucky enough to see that off Broadway at the public. Are you? Are you doing? Spoiler alert to everybody listening. Are you doing next to normal as part of this series? Yes. Okay. So I will say, since I won't be on that episode, that I that you we, don't know. 
Well, I don't know, but I'll, I'll spoiler alert now if I am. <laughs> when I I saw that show at Second Stage when yeah. it was okay. Yeah, it was more comedy though, wasn't it? It was campier. Yeah, she had her Costco. She had her and Costco. Yeah, la 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 Costco. Yes, <laughs> I. Oh man, do I remember that? But, <laughs> um, but then year and a half later, I saw it on Broadway, and I sat there at intermission, yeah. and I went, "They fixed it." Yeah. Holy shit! And then at the end of the show, I was like. I still don't think this is a perfect show. I think there's a lot about this show that's not great, but man, if it isn't way more effective. Yeah. And they actually figured out what to do to make it work. Also, you can name the number of perfect musicals on one hand. Sure. Perfect, perfection is overrated. Greatness is, I think, even harder to achieve. And I think there are a number of great musicals. But I, Yes, but I, th- I, th- but in that case, yeah. it, it was— I'm, a- I'm saying this for the trolls out there. They're like, we should get purified next to normal. That's not a critique, guys. I, perfection has to is an objective, like, sitting there at the, with the material and being like, does this connect? And if everyone remembers from the Sondheim series, Preston Max Allen found the one flaw in Gypsy, so Gypsy is not a perfect musical. Bitch. Uh- <laughs> that asshole. <laughs> but- He's not, he wasn't wrong about it, though. Well— anyway the but 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 it is it is very satisfying when you go when you to return to something that you were already like okay and then you're like oh wow yeah they figured out the problem and that made it work fun there were no problems with fun home home they took they took greatness and made it otherworldly like Mm. things that i didn't think were weak yeah and i remember when they were like oh we cut Al for short, and we were like, "Excuse you, Al for short was so delightful." How dare you? We were like, "Sydney Lucas was so wonderful in that number," and then they just cut it and made it a small scene between her and Bruce, and made it the party dress thing, mm-hmm. and connected it to the "I want, I want." I was like, "Oh, that!" Like, they took this really sweet number and like just made it even more profound with this scene. The in the round worked better. Everything just clicked in a way that I went, "Holy fucking shirt balls!" And I saw it six times, not because I was so obsessed with it, but just because I was like, "I, I don't." There's not a lot of amazing shit on Broadway to me. And so when I see something that I'm truly like, this is at the level that I always want things to be, mm-hmm. I'm going to see it as much as I can just because I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to see this kind of shit again. Yeah. Um, usually that means like two or three times. Fun Home was a very special case. But with Rent, you know, it's not that. It was, it was as you said, it was an ownership. It was this show belongs to me. This is my show. Yeah. And I think something that I was thinking about while you were, while you were talking and I was listening and what you were saying was feeding my thought. I think about theater camp, Stage Door Manor. Everyone take a shot. Where they did do Rent twice my... You went to Stage Door Manor? <sighs> I've never brought it up once before. <clears throat> oh, my God. Oh, my, oh, my God. Stage Door Manor. Performing Arts Camp. Um, or I think they call it Center now. But, so, you know, theater kids in the Catskills. Right. Majority white. Most of us from upper middle class families. Some from very upper class families. I bet that was a fucking Rent Mecca. Um... A lot. It was a lot. So when I, I mean, probably yeah. a little bit before you I got, started going there. Yeah. Oh, like, I'm sure when it happened. Yeah. I got there in 2003. So there were five more years of Rent on Broadway. Yeah. So Rent was still very much a thing, but it was the older kids were now getting to Jason Robert Brown. Oh, so yeah. Rent was yeah. Rent was really like it. It wasn't that Rent was uncool, but like the quote unquote uncool theater kids were more obvious about Rent and Phantom, whereas like the cooler theater kids were like, no, 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 Jason Robert Brown, man, and then like. By the next year, JRB became, like, du jour. But so there were girls at Stage Door who were so into Rent, and they would take their T-shirts and, like, cut it up. And they would cut up their jeans. And they would wear, like, you know, the, they would take the gloves and cut off the, the fingers and whatnot. 
but like the following year that would be gone like that was their personality for a year right. and there's nothing wrong with that when you're no. when you're a teenager you're trying on different things different hats of who am i in this world Do and your thing. and rent is so there's so much about rent that is so effective mm. and when you're at an impressionable age you're like is this me like this looks like such an interesting way to be is this who i am and i think it says something that a lot of the people that really quote unquote were affected by rent don't really carry as much w- of it with them anymore in mm-hmm. older age. Mm-hmm. Like, in a nostalgic sense, they do, but like, I don't know. Everyone I know who talks about, like, oh, when I was in middle school, like, I wrote the lyrics on my sneakers. I'm like, but you don't have anything about it in your home. Not that you right. like, not that that's the only token, but you know what I mean? Like, there are so many other things that we carry with us in our homes and our, in our clothes and our whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a 32-year-old person who has a fucking Little Mermaid phone case, but that's that shit sticks with me. Uh, can confirm. Yes, can confirm. Uh, I smile in Harry Potter and everywhere. Sure. But, you know, I don't know Rent nowhere. And Rent was very important to me for about two years. Yeah, uh, same. But um, – and, sa- and same thing with the writers that claim to have been inspired by Rent. Like, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda talks all the time about, like, he saw it, like, 20, 30 times. He, you know, he's not sure he would have been a musical theater writer today if it weren't for Rent. And I think with the way that he carries that now is through having done Tick, Tick, Boom, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is its own troubled musical that I think the movie improves a lot on, even if I don't love the movie. But, I mean, I I don't hear any rent in any of Lynn's stuff. No, I mean, the show that – the only show that I think I ever saw that got produced off Broadway – like, I saw – there were a couple of – um of like fringe shows and stuff that i saw where it was like oh you were clearly influenced by rent yeah um just in like in, in music style but the only show that i rem- remember seeing that was that was actually com- commercially produced off broadway was bear that felt like such Ugh. a rent ripoff rent me. rent meets degrassi 100 percent. yeah and Ugh. i know it, it, there there were parts that but, but again, I mean, not, not even to go off, go on and on about that. But like, that was an original company of a show that was very good. Um, when it was at the actors, what the hell is that space on Fifty Fourth Street? The actors, actors Temple, no. Actors Temple, no, oh no, not Actors Temple, Actors Playhouse. The no. one, the one where you're in town originated. Oh yeah, over like the fire station. Yes. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. So that was where Bear originally played, and that original cast was great. But they really were trying so hard to make it a rent. Yeah. And it was like, and I and I remember. I saw it, I think, two or three times because I had a friend involved, like, it was doing, like, press for it or something. Mm-hmm. And it always touched me to a degree. Like, I never, I was never, like, totally cold-hearted about it. But there was also something about it that just felt so wannabe to me at the time. Yeah. Where I was like, ugh, you just want to be Rent so bad. That's the thing is, like, the 2000s is really when, like, the Rent knockoffs really started, not the late 90s. There were four more years. Well, they of- had to get workshops. That's true. But, you know, like, you know what I mean? And it's... When I talk about, like, you know, carrying rent with you, I don't – those were shows, like, were shows like Bear and Spring Awakening and, you know, shit like that. I don't think they were, like – I don't think to them it was that rent meant so much that they wanted to – that, like, it influenced their – you think so? I think I, – I think I even heard that it was, like, a direct, like, inspiration. Interesting. I always got from Bear that – I don't know, that, like, maybe rent inspired them to write. Mm. but that they weren't necessarily trying to like connect the dots to that i don't know yeah well and i can also it was just so try hard i can also very much say that that original production yeah was a kabillion times better and more interesting than that version that they did at new world stages i didn't see the new world stages production missed nothing i'm i'm sure 
also had some good people in that cast too, though. Yeah, but the, 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 to be fair to Bear, I never saw the one in New York. I saw it in college. It was not the best of productions. Sure. So maybe with a good cast and a good director, it would be better. I do not care for it at the time. Fair. I don't decide. I do not desire to ever see it again. But how am I getting to this? Rent, all this shit. Um, fandom. Fandom, yeah. Oh, and, well, and then we talk about this legacy, but we don't have to talk about the movie much more. We didn't talk about it all that much to begin with. But we have the there's there's not much there's not much to talk about. Everyone's too old. Everyone's auto tuned. Everyone's way too pretty. They it's and it's Chris Columbus who directed Home Alone. They translated a lot of lyrics into spoken dialogue, which is embarrassing. In fairness to them, Phantom did it first. Okay. No, it was it was a bad decision then. It was a bad decision for Rent. I'm just saying they made the choice to do it and it was bad. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Chris Columbus is not a good filmmaker no he got very lucky with home alone uh i actually think that the first harry potter film is quite delightful i even think chamber of secrets is pretty delightful Mrs. but delphire is an enjoyable film it's an enjoyable enough. sad but sure. it's enjoyable enjoyable movie. enough but he i don't think he particularly is very on top of it and then rent was also something that he had no business directing there was talk right. for a long time of spike lee directing it which i love that which Sin- made a lot more sense i love that synergy but all it was also at the time where Chicago got away with being a big movie musical hit by having all the songs being in Rocky's mind right. so they could get away with the big production numbers. But it was also like, don't worry. No one's breaking out a song like in the street. So show a movie like Rent was like, well, what the fuck do we do? They have to break out a song in the street. I guess we don't have them break out into song all the time. Right. And something like Rent as a film, and I talked about this, you know, with like the Dreamgirls movie. It's got to be music all the time. If we're going to be on board with it, the train's got to never stop moving. Yeah. And that train, for both Dreamgirls and Rent, it stops and it starts and stops and it starts all the time. I mean, Rent is a boring mess, whereas Dreamgirls is sort of an interesting mess. But the movie of Rent is also confusing. They they chose to set the movie in the late 80s, which yeah. timeline-wise, fine, but it doesn't look like the late 80s. No, it does it not. It is the most confusing confusing like what when the fuck are we yeah so anachronistically yeah Uh, but i'm saying this because like the movie comes out and yes it's not very good but there was a hope that could still be successful because rent was such a huge phenomenon and i remember i think it was like the number one movie on friday and then it swan dove into the gracie muse that saturday sunday that it became like number four overall for the weekend and then just died I also will never understand. I, part of me is like, is it just because you live there and you didn't want to like travel? But why they filmed it in San Francisco instead of in New York? Well, they did film some of it in New York, but it was eighty percent San Francisco. Yeah, I don't know. So I much guess, of those outdoor scenes are San Francisco, and you can tell. Well, with the CGI cold breath. Um, well, there, there are so many creative decisions we could ask. For example, why is it that Mimi is working in the nicest, most expensive club of all time? Oh, she is a class stripper. She is, which, where she never takes off any clothes. No. Um, the, I honestly, I'll, I'll say more than anything else, one of my biggest gripes about the film is, number one, its choice to put uh, Seasons of Love at the, at the opening. Sure. But also that they took away all of the stakes of Act 1 by setting Act 1 over, over a week. several days. Yeah, instead of three hours. It really just makes you go, okay. Yeah. Well, and similar to the Dear Evan Hansen movie, whereas there is some... It doesn't matter, baby. <laughs> whereas the stage... Don't condescend <laughs> me, you bitch. <laughs> where is it... Whereas the stage show 
the morality is a little more gray with some of the moments. The movie's like, no, earnesty all the time. There, no day but today. But it's but but it's no day but today. So for example, another day, where yes, Maureen and uh, not Maureen, uh, Mimi is like correct to try to get Roger to come out of the house to get out of his shell. She is also trying to get a recovering drug addict to, to do, do drugs. drugs. Yep. He is right to kick her the fuck out. Yeah. She's like, here, here's some heroin. Want to do yeah, it? But, like, the song itself is a little gray. He is right to kick her out. And then, and this is, again, like, similar to the homeless woman situation. Like, eventually he's the one who apologizes to her. Like, I'm sorry I have to do it off the handle. It's like, no, you were right. But he, he's, his reasoning for kicking her out isn't like, how dare you come and tempt me? Mm-hmm. His, he's like, how dare you come and be beautiful and wonderful and magical and I want to kiss you. Go away. I can't have you. I should tell you. And so, like, the, his actions are correct, if not the reasoning. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's a moral gray area to it. Whereas the movie's like, no. No day but today. You're wrong, Roger. And they have Mark and Angel and Collins magically show up behind Mimi from support group and be like, no, but Roger, no day but today, man. Whereas in the stage show, she's singing along with the support group where, who are in another room, which is also foreshadowing that Mimi also has AIDS because she is singing the mantra of the AIDS support group uh-huh. that she has definitely gone to. Um, it's a solid moment It's in the stage show. The... The Mimi Roger scene work, I think, is really strong writing. I agree. Um, again, my issue with another day is just like I think Larson is not. I wish Larson had put a little more time into Roger actually being morally right and Mimi being morally wrong. Mm. It's more kind of he just sort of allows it to exist, which is fine. That is human. It. It just takes, like, two lines of Rogers to be like, by the way, I'm recovering. Go fuck yourself. He literally says to her in Light My Candle, I used to be a junkie, which is why she's like, well, but in Light My Candle, he takes her stash. He does. He tries to get it away from her. But that's – But isn't it for him to ha- to use no. his own? No. He's taking. He's trying to get it away from her. I didn't take it in that way. Oh, I – I, I t- always took it as he was taking it for himself to sneak later on. Oh, I never took it that way. I took it that he's trying to get her to quit that stuff. Interesting. Why don't you forget that stuff? Um, he says it's a candy bar wrapper, which I texted that to you. Listening to – if there's one improvement Adam Pascal has as an actor from the Broadway cast recording of Rent to the movie soundtrack, it's his line of delivery of it's a candy bar wrapper. He goes – Candy bar wrapper. Well, in the movie, he goes, it's a candy bar wrapper. And in the Broadway cast recording, he's like, it's a candy bar wrapper. Because uh-huh. he says it like – so he says it earnestly with no R's and it's almost like I remember the first time I heard it I was like what's so special about a candy bar wrapper because oh. he, he says it like it's a candy bar wrapper oh yeah like he's discovered it yeah <laughs> <laughs> I never understood that line of her delivery oh, anyway oh my god well first of all I will say let's talk about the cast recording for a second yeah the original cast recording really does an amazing job at capturing the energy and magnetism of this cast. 100%. This show. 100%. It is, having just re-listened to it, it is still a very exciting recording to listen to. Oh, yeah. Everybody still, everybody sounds fucking incredible. Yep. Singing their fucking faces off. No one's holding back. It's not a sterile cast recording. No, and it, but it, but it, and it does, it, it really has an incredible energy. It has a, an immediacy to it. it you really do, it, it really does feel like the, the theatrical experience it's the kind of energy you get either when your show is like about to close and it's your last hurrah like the original merrily right. or when your show is such a fucking hit 
and you go into that studio and you're like, go fucking us. Like that My Fair Lady cast recording, the original My Fair Lady cast recording has one of the most exciting overtures of all time because everyone's like, guys, we have jobs for like the next five years. And it's, hey guys, I think we did it. Yeah, we did it. We did it. Yeah. Everyone's like, guys, we are the hottest thing in the world. It's why I wish they actually had recorded Evita a couple of months into the Broadway run. A, when Patty was more vocally comfortable, but also mm. by that point when they were like a phenomenon. Right. And they could have been like, guys, it's us. We're the moment. Whereas in L- they're in LA and everyone's like, I don't know if this is going to work. <laughs> People keep walking out. Um. Oh, but all of that to say, like, there are. I don't care if I'm no. overusing this word. There are iconic after iconic line deliveries mm-hmm. during these songs, some of which are so incredibly cool and good. Some of them are so weird. Yeah. But the choices, there are choices. Says Tay has some interesting line deliveries. Really? Not my attitude. Uh-huh. Uh, it's the way there were. T- oh, as, I always love his <laughs> after he says yeah. that. <laughs> Every as a as a younger person who again would listen to the music and be like, yes. And the music still holds up very much so. Mm. But like the storytelling in some of the lyrics did not make sense to me as a kid. And so I just thought that they were words that I was like, oh, it's whatever. I, maybe I get it. Maybe I don't. But so I remember the lyric of the Maureen is protesting, losing a performance space, not my attitude. I, I don't know what it was. I didn't realize that Benny was commenting on Mark's comment. When Mark mm. says, like, oh, that attitude towards the homeless is what Maureen's protesting against. And I always thought it was, um, like, the way that it's sung and then spoken, it felt like to me Benny was, like, reminiscing to himself. Like, Maureen is protesting loser, losing her performance space. Not my attitude. Like, <laughs> it's like, like, not my, like, that's not my kind of attitude. And I didn't realize he's saying, no, Maureen isn't protesting the homeless. She's protesting me taking away her performance space, not my attitude. Right. Stupid. Bitch. But that's also, like, the way that it's written. Um. Yeah, no, it's, but I, I mean, I, I could, I don't huh. even go down the list, huh. but there's so America, yeah. America, prairie dogs. Oh yeah. Yeah. So Just, yeah. Iconic, iconic. Absolutely. Uh, thoughts on contact, not the musical, the song. I was, oh, well done. I was, I, I, that, that was another thing I was going to bring up. So I think that number makes no sense. Uh, yeah. Especially. Actually, it makes more sense on the cast recording than it does in the stage show. The staging of it is not great. It's just unclear. Yeah. Like, at least on the cast recording, I hear that everybody's having sex. Yeah. And, you know, you hear Angel have, like, you know, having some sort of ecstasy moment. Yeah. Physical ecstasy, not taking ecstasy. Um, And then you hear everybody, like, everybody has a, a fail in bed. Yeah. And then you hear it's over. And we go into on the rec- we we skip the funeral service and go straight into yeah. I'll cover you. But I think that the storytelling on the recording with it is very clear. The staging of that musical number I think is so confusing. I yes because it's like nothing else in the show. Yeah, and it's very um. It's 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 I don't not that I want it to be more literal. It just feels so like such a weird dream ballet moment when. Yeah, it's it's well, just it's, just a, it's a it's a cluster. And if you read the if you read Brantley's review in the Times, he's like not super pleased with the staging of the show in general. Mm. Uh, so it's it's ironic to me when you read like the oral history and everyone's like it's so crazy how things just like came together and it be and it was like it just happened to be the perfect choice. And you read some of the re- reviews for you in that moment. Yeah, <laughs> you read you read some of the reviews and they like they have things to pick apart and a lot of them are like listen like 
the this is really profound writing like i wish it was given a better production uh so it's, it's just funny to hear people talk about it that way anyway but yeah context is a number that makes people uncomfortable make confuses people um i think sex in general makes people uncomfortable yeah uh i i've been pondering this as a possibly like a instagram think piece at some point but why is the broadway musical so afraid of sex very much which so. is not to say afraid of being sexy being sexy is very different from sex yeah. moulin rouge has no problem attempting to be sexy moulin rouge has no interest in sex it, it, well it's why i think and i know you'll get to it when you talk about it but like why spring awakening was so surprising at the time yeah was i mean number one sex on simulated sex on stage yeah with young people yeah who were all of age but playing like yeah. 15 16 year olds that was i mean it, i i'm amazed that that show did as well as it did given yeah how how sexually overt it was well, and also how they did spring awakening and yes we will talk about this more when eventually get to that episode spring awakening what i appreciate for all of the issues i have with it and all the things i love about it i appreciate that they explore sex in every way it can be especially yeah. at such a young age where yeah. you're figuring your way out in the dark sex can be beautiful it can be scary it can be hilarious it can be isolating it can be communal yeah and contact i feel like it's trying to make you understand not understand, trying to get you to feel the high and the rug being pulled out from under you in terms of intimacy with a partner mm -hmm. What it does to the overall landscape of the show, I couldn't tell you. It kind of sticks out like a sore thumb to me. I agree. I feel like it's there mostly as a as a clever way of telling us that Angel has died. Because the way Angel's solo happens, then we go to the – it's over. You could argue that it's Angel and Collins having sex and Angel having her ecstasy moment. And it's the com – uh, going back to today for you, tomorrow for me. But this time it's today for me tomorrow for you it's like it's take me my moment i i want my big o to quote miss violet miss miss hilton if you're nasty i want mine where is mine <laughs> but also you could argue the way that it's staged with the light behind angel it's also angel going into the light of you know take right. me i'm done i'm ready angel's right. dying well because up until then she's like suffering on a table during without you yeah. yes she's she is now we she went from being perfectly fine to suffering the big suffer uh, right. Well, and so and so that's why the other reason why I think contact is confusing in terms of what's actually happening in that moment because you've been watching her in the during taking your leave me and uh, without you um sort of very quickly de declining yeah. in health. Yeah. Um and so it's like wait, are you having sex while you're this ill? Yeah. Are you or is this your ascent into death yeah a, a death a higher place whatever yeah. it's 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 very confusing oh i also don't want to confuse people uh whereas uh hiv is a virus it does not it does that is not aids aids is the syndrome that you get when hiv goes untreated which Correct. it does which for a lot of people in the 80s and early 90s and people still today if they don't get themselves tested that happened if you were not testing yourself regularly if you didn't have access to health care so angel collins mimi and roger they have aids mm -hmm. um and it's actually one of my favorite moments it, it might be the only time that aids 
uh, is involved in a meet cute is when Collins and Angel meet, <laughs> and Angel says, oh, yeah. "Yes, this body provides a comfortable home for the acquired immune deficiency syndrome." As does mine. Oh, we'll get along fine. Yeah, I. Lo- that's basically Angel you being got like, AIDS? "I got AIDS." <laughs> Girl, I'll be AIDS. Angel's like, oh, fantastic. Barebacking it is. <laughs> Did you wait until I was sipping water to say that? No. That almost was... came out of my nose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh... I didn't realize it would affect you so hard. It just got me. <laughs> but so this is to say, with a lot of people who have AIDS or and had AIDS, you could be fine for a while and then within a week you were like rapidly declining well and especially when this show is originally being written i mean because even technology and 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 in medicine even had improved from the time he'd started writing this show yeah like i mean because even in the early night like 89 90 people were still dropping like flies yeah whereas in by the mid 90s there were more and more people that had access to treatments that were allowing them to live longer yes azt was the one of the first drugs to um to help people suffering with actual with i don't I'm, i don't know don't quote me on this I, I i don't know if azt was specifically for if you once once aids had reached your system or if it was something that you took when you had hiv i don't know i for think sure. it i i want to say aids okay um but it was but it was one it was one of the first uh treatments in pill form yeah that would help people's symptoms and things subside yeah yes yes, yes. um well because from my research, I'm, I'm, I'm listen. I, I did a lot of research for this. It's late, and we just ate, and my mouth is burning with cauliflower buffalo sauce. But <laughs> AZT, I believe, was uh, originally used as a cancer drug for um, mm. for chemo. I think. Oh, that would. Make and sense. then I think they tested it for uh, AIDS treatment, and uh, and and then sort of migrated it to that. Um, but because it was used for both, they weren't making enough of it at the time when it was first being distributed, which is why it was such hot pills, as Pryor says in Angels in America. But eventually, similar to, you know, COVID vaccines and whatnot, like when eventually they start making more of it and yeah. when the government finally acknowledged AIDS, yeah. it was uh, more of a regular uh, drug. Point is, yes, by the mid-90s, technology and medicine had progressed enough that you could have AIDS and you weren't necessarily going to die later that year. But that is where larson was when he wrote it on this same topic yes. this was the other thing that i thought of while watch rewatching this yeah and it's more just there's nothing particularly deep about this but we got to the end of the show mm-hmm. with the mimi quote-unquote death jumped over the before moon, yeah. she comes back yeah mimi but, dies in lava OM. she does not die in rent she almost does right um I'm not gonna lie to you. Okay, so last last night when I was finishing watching Act Two of Rent, yeah, I'd had an edible, and yes, that's right, the cannabis kids. We found madness. madness. <laughs> um, but I was sitting and watching it, and I, <laughs> my my mind just went to a very dark humor place, where Mimi came back to life. Yeah. And we got to the finale and everybody – and, you know, you've got her fever's breaking and everybody's moving on and yeah. so excited she's alive. And I'm like, but then the show ends. How do we know that bitch didn't, like, die ten minutes later? Yeah. People sometimes when they die from, like, heart failure, they have one final burst of energy and then and they I die. Had, but I ended up having a giggle fit <laughs> all through the final note. But today, as I'm like, 
what if she like came up and they were like she's she's back and then she just kicks it again that is the lights go that is going to be my production of Rand, much like Tina Landau's Annie, where Annie woke up and the whole thing was a dream. As they are, what it is is everyone is such a narcissist mm-hmm. that they are all singing while watching Mark's movie, No Day with Day, and dies. she's just dying in Roger's arms, and no one is the wiser because no, everyone Roger gets up to sing, so nobody's with her at the table. Nope. Nope. Everyone's either staring at their reflection or their own image in Mark's movie. And they're uh-huh. going, oh, no day but today. Write it on my sneakers. Middle school kids will love me. And Mimi's like, dead. Something that always bothered me as a youngin mm. was how much they acted like their quote-unquote chosen family was so important to them when you really think about it they were only that chosen family for less than a year starting with christmas going into halloween well well so as an older person now i'm a little different about it okay not that sorry you said you said as a younger person i apologize yes as a younger person because and when i mean this chosen family i literally mean the roger mark collins angel mimi Maureen, Joanne. Right. Because Joanne and Mark do not meet till Christmas Day. Mimi right. and Roger, Mimi doesn't meet anyone till Christmas Day. Collins doesn't meet Angel till Christmas Day. Collins has also been away for, or is it Christmas Eve, sorry. Christmas Eve, 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 Eve. December 24th. <laughs> yes. 9 p.m. Eastern yeah. Standard Time. But so you have to think of it as Christmas Eve is the day that this family becomes the family, so to speak. But even then, Maureen and Joanne break up that night. So we have like six days of Joanne and Maureen kind of not being together in the group all the time. Pookie. 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 And you shall see the padlock you're building and the riding on Avenue A. I inverted what Freddie does in that bootleg. <laughs> she literally says, and I should say, the padlock you're building and the riding on Avenue B. Freddie, not the lyric. But um, that's not a rhyme, girl. But so Halloween is Angel's funeral. Mm-hmm. So we're talking... 10 months, Ten months of this chosen family. Now, the person in me that wants to get drinks with Lindsay Ellis watches this and goes, you fucking narcissistic assholes who think that you're special. Oh, this beautiful family must die after 10 months. Like, y- you don't know enough about each other. You haven't spent enough time with each other yet. That said, sometimes you bond with people very quickly. And, yeah. and it's even more painful when like you don't get as much time as you should yeah uh so it is very even though it's 10 months it could have been the most meaningful 10 months of all of their lives you know totally well and and again you know in that time frame in which the show takes place um you know which got crazier and crazier as the years went on as it ran but in the early early 90s you know people well i was watching um I was watching some documentary with uh, some rent documentary and they, but they were talking about Jonathan Larson and and his group of friends. And he had a couple of friends who, you know, I mean, people are losing 30 friends a year. Yeah. So when you are, when you're living in a time where there is a true plague going on and people are dying because, and, and, and your, and your, your friends are literally dropping like flies you know, you kind of hold on to whoever is closest that you can connect with. Yeah. And I think that that's what, that's one thing that Rent gets right. Um, 
it gets a lot of things right but it's but as far as like people i don't think that these people are all as, as selfish as you know we want to joke about them being i think that they are they are a caring group of people for each other yeah um and 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 they are holding fast to make sure that they look out for one another the thing about rent that isn't unique to it we see it all the time with art is works stories that are earnest about earnest people make a lot of people uncomfortable yes uh and they tend to get those stories tend to get villainized vilified villainized 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 no or vilified vilified they mean the same thing right yeah oh sign up speaking of which by the way there is a lyric in rent and you okay honey they get any money no had none to get but they purloined my coat purloined my coat purloined everyone just means steal they stole my coat they stole my coat i was trying to think on the way over here what's a famous lyric where you could just like replace that simple word with a fancier version of the word and it's like i mean i i i I appreciate that in that moment that's jonathan larson being like we need to show immediately that he's a more intelligent person yes well i mean he teaches computer computer philosophy at mit yeah no, I know, but it's just yeah. like, what's what's one of the first things that he can say where it makes yeah. him sound like yeah. he's much he's a very educated human being? He said purloined. purloined. <laughs> they purloined my coat. Well, so fun fact, by the way, uh, when they were doing workshops of this, one of the first workshops they did, uh, the second uh, it was a two week workshop, and they did surveys for audience response, and they said the overwhelming response was, "Why should I care? Why can't they all just get a job?" <laughs> and larson never answers the second question he decides to try to answer the first question of like Mm. okay let me try to get you to care about these characters more Uh and and you're right like they are not completely selfish they clearly have love and care for each other they have empathy they're not complete narcissists but i think where the where the issue comes into play for a lot of people and we talked about this again and so we won't talk about it too much again is the romanticism of poverty and the fact that it's all for the sake of their art and none of them are really good artists um well and i think also you you know a little bit that gets lost in translation when it comes to la boheme not direct translation but translating from one uh one time frame to another yeah is that in the time frame of la boheme people probably people had fewer resources yeah so now but now it's like when you're in the early 90s and you have far more resources well and again in la boheme the artists in la boheme are not like i suffer from my art they're like they they would love nothing more than to sell their paintings and their music Uh and to live in a nice apartment with a fireplace yeah the irony of the opening scene is that they have to burn their sheet music and their paintings to keep warm and it's like we're and the only reason we're cold is because we wanted to we chose this life Mm -hmm. and we have to kill our darlings to survive rent is like it tries to have it both ways they have like occasional eye roll lyrics where they're like some life that we chosen it's like yeah but you you want this life you you did want it you did want it (laughs) and it sucks when you have again actual homeless people who are failed by the world and can never get make their way back up and then you know the hustlers of christmas bells who are doing everything they can to survive Right. And you know we we yell at the thieves who stole Collins's coat, but they're trying to make a buck so they can still live in their places. Because you want to know what they're doing? They're paying rent. The people who beat up Collins, you want to know what they're doing? They're paying their rent. Yeah. Yep. 
You want to know what that drug dealer for Mimi's doing? Paying his rent. <laughs> Just saying. Um, any other songs you want to talk about? Moments we want to talk? Characters you want to talk about? Hmm. We didn't really talk about La Vibo M all that much. We don't have to. It's such a long song with every word in the dictionary. I think that's – so the thing about La Vibo M, which I do – I mean, it, it is still a very clever, fun song. I, I think that's the, what, that I, what I can really say about it. The only song to name check Susan Sontag and Stephen Sondheim. Yeah. Yeah. And I anything will, taboo. I will, I will say – And Pee Wee Herman. And Pee Wee Herman and German Wine, Turpentine, uh, Gertrude Stein. It is a really – I would hope – for youngsters who listen to it, they take the time to like look up all the things it's referencing. Well, yes, a hundred percent. And I also, it's it is one of those songs that will frequently come into my mind because some I'll some be watching something else where something from that song is referenced. Not one of like the bigger mainstream things, yeah. but like I remember the first time that I ever heard somebody talking about Carmina Barana, yeah. and I was like. Carmina you know, like there's so many things that that he does touch on that are all you know sort of like uh, i don't know i don't know popular and uh, and avant-garde type artists oh um, he he fully ruined maya angelou forever because oh, i yeah. can't hear her name anymore without thinking, rancheros and maya angelou curry vandalu so, um friend of the pod ali gordon when we were in high school and we thought we were so clever she told me about a friend of hers who was an aspiring lyricist much older than we were because he was, I think, 20, so, 20 years old or something when the show came out. And I guess Brantley had mentioned in one of his reviews or in a Times piece about the cleverness of the lyrics, oh, rhyming Curry Vindaloo with Maya Angelou. Mm. And he wrote to the Times and he was like, dear Mr. Brantley, I may not be a Pulitzer winning writer, but even I can rhyme Lou with Lou. And <laughs> in a way he is right, but it's more than just that because a lot of rhymes are often the last syllable sounds the same. Yeah. It's the fact that he found two instances exact. with with the same exact number of syllables and and they and they scan exact like that's just that, that is clever it is it is clever um, and but no but it's but to speak on love you bohem um yes. so my first exposure to that song was on the tony awards because mm. that was before the cast album came out yes and so at that point i'd seen season of love seasons of love on tv with, yeah you know tv performances um, but that was the first time I'd gotten to hear another song from Wet. Mm. And so La Vie Boheme was, you know, to this little kid in the San Francisco suburbs, it was like, oh, look at these adults that are like, they're, they're like, they're all sexual and having a good time. And girls kissing girls. Yeah. yeah. It was not, not shocking, but it was very much a, and this is, and, but it, but I can a hundred percent totally see where the rent fandom comes from yeah and ex and, and and the mindset of it is i remember watching that being like i want to go live like that yeah there's but then you come but then you're like no no it, the other thing is about lavi bohem but also how sexy that cast was yeah they were sexy they looked great they filled out those jeans quite nicely the it is a phenomenal act one finale it is probably it's one great. of the it's one of the best of all time um it just it 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 get it energizes and builds in a way that is very infectious to the point where like when we get to the very end after the they're just sitting there mooing uh -huh. which you know we already discussed my issues with that yes. but um when they get to the uh to me to me to me to me to you and you and you, you like all of that for some reason like that always gets me i can just imagine like a group of people 
singing that in a bar. Well, I remember in I a mean, not weird way. I wasn't out of the closet just yet, but I at that point I I knew that I was not straight, and <clears throat> to hear a song on television and they didn't bleep anything. No. To hear them on national TV sing to faggots, lezzies, dykes, crossdressers too, I was like, you just positively used the F word. Yep. Where I was like, oh my God, like that's reaffirming in some ways. Like there were, there were things about the, the, what Rent did celebrate that made young artistic people feel supported. So there's the, one of the last lines in La Vibo, I'm going back to the faggot thing for a second mm. when people i know when people get like triggered when i use that word sometimes and i'm like here's the thing though when are okay times well the, but, but so when mark says the opposite of war is in peace it's creation yeah which is you know you know going back to tolstoy's war and peace it's not war destroys creation you know makes more of the only way to undermine hate besides knowledge and exposure is to take the weapons that are thrown at you and turn them into flowers right so if you call me faggot, if I can repurpose that as a point of endearment mm-hmm. and make that my own, you can't use it to hurt me anymore. What else are you Correct. gonna What else are you gonna say? Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's every it's every minority or um, uh, oppressed group. They all use terms that have been used against them for their own sake, and obviously, you know, that that does not cross barriers to allies and people not in those groups. Correct. Uh, but. It's why, like, I have no issue using the F word around my friends, not in a way that's hateful, but in a way of, like, no, I I give that word less hate and less power by giving by giving it the energy that I give it. Mm-hmm. So similar to what you said with when they say faggots, lezzies, dykes, it, yeah, no, it is, it is a very powerful moment, or at least it was. It's probably a little less so now because we all – well, we I all mean, feel now, brave to use that stuff. Yes, and well, and now we've also normalized a bit more the usage of the word queer. Yeah, like nowadays, queer is used as a positive oh. description of describer descriptor of a group of back of, uh, minorities. Back when I had an OK Cupid account, mm-hmm. back in the long, long days ago, in the, in the before time, they they you know OK Cupid has these questions they can that they'll ask you and you answer as many as you want and the idea is the more questions you answer the more the easier it is for them to match up with someone like you and one of the questions was like how do you feel about the word queer and i remember the time being like no i that's hateful mm. and i would be surprised if the people would be like yeah no absolutely and over time i realized you know how we how our community was using that as a more umbrella term for everyone right to be included well i the first time that i ever heard that word used non-offensively was i'm picking up my rent book right now and i'm holding it up and i'm showing that in the back of the rent book they there are little like cast bios and with an anthony raps cast Mm -hmm. bio he he jokes about the fact that all of the the main queer characters in the show are played by straight actors Mm -hmm. and he just thinks it's hilarious that he's like playing one of the straight characters and is and identified as queer. Yeah. But that was the first time I'd ever seen anybody use the word queer to identify. Interesting. And I remember as a teenager being like, oh, weird. I've never heard that word used in a positive way to identify yourself. Yeah. Um, so. And then he had that book about his mom dying around the time of rent, right? It's called Without You. Without You, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so – as as we were talking about with the movie for a second, and now you know with the show, when the show eventually does close in two thousand eight, wins the Pulitzer, wins best musical at the Tony Awards, opposite Bring It to Noise, Bring It to Funk, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. uh, which was another big hit and won choreography, direction, supporting actress, and I think one other thing. Big the musical. Well, Big was not up for music mus- for uh, best musical. Oh, it wasn't. That, so th- okay, they so, allowed them a performance even though they weren't up for musical. So here's Shocking. so here's the thing. This especially 20- then. This was a very dramatic twenty awards because this was oh, the this year is the egregiously overlooked year. Yes, this is the year where Julie Andrews declines her nomination and Donna Murphy basically wins by default for King and I. This is also the year where it's um, Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk, Rent, uh, I think Swinging on a Star, and I think Chronicle of a Death Foretold. That sounds right. I think those are the four, yeah. And Big got nominated for Score, Book, Choreography, Supporting Actor, and Actress, and I think maybe one other thing. Mm -hmm. And everyone, and Big was originally going to be like the big hit. Uh, Everyone thought it was going to be like the massive hit of the year. And in fact, like the Schubert's had offered rent when they were coming from off broadway to broadway like one of their lesser theaters and they're like well what about the schubert and they're like well big is coming in here so like we can't give it to you and like and like big's gonna be like the next phantom and they, oh uh, we don't actually know what they told them when they said wait until next year because like big's gonna be a uh, phantom and like you're gonna be you know the romance romance and, and they're like and producer was like no offense jerry and bernard but like big is no phantom and we're like we are we're rent uh we're but coming. so yeah, but so Big gets overlooked for Best Musical, and there ended up being not an investigation, so to speak, but an evaluation of the voting system from the nominating committee, because it used to be on a preferential ballot, mm-hmm. and which is, I think, where the Oscars are now going. But it used to be nominators voted on, like, a, uh, so it wasn't the number of votes something got, but it was number of votes something got and where it placed in a top four. So... It was deduced that enough nominators put Big at, like, number four, like, put, took Big off the ballot completely to rock the votes. And then, like, put, uh, like, Chronicle of the Death Foretold and Swing on a Star at number one and number two so they could inch out Big. Wow. Because that was a year where if you were nominated for Best Score and Best Book and at least one acting nomination – there was no world in which you weren't going to get a best musical nomination. Mm. It was definitely, it was a fuck you to that show and it's F.E.O. Schwartz endorsement. Sure. Um, but I still can't believe that Victor Victoria didn't get nominated for best musical. It's not great, but like it should have been it, well, nominated. It, w- it should have been rent, bring into noise, big and Victor Victoria. That yeah. should have been the four swinging on a star and Chronicle had both died. Was, uh, was Chronicle, was it Chronicle of a death foretold? I think so. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, Save. Yeah, it was, and and uh, they were they were two, they were they were filler shows that no one cared about, and they were there to be a fuck you to Big and Victor Victoria. Point is, is that Rent wins, uh, Wilson wins supporting actor. Uh, it runs for twelve years. It has a year and a half run in London. Uh, during right after it opens uh, on Broadway, Lynn Thompson, the dramaturg who helped Jonathan Larson, sued for uh, almost twenty percent of the royalties and a writing credit because she was like, I helped write rent that script was a mess until i came along and the case eventually got thrown out because the judge was like okay what did you write she's like well i couldn't tell you right which everyone well everyone looks at it and they're like oh well she's clearly wrong it's like no especially for a collaborative process like rent where it's like it was jonathan's show and lynn kind of came in and would make tweaks and things would happen in the rehearsal room where she would probably pitch a line and they would use it it's a year it's a year later <clears throat> you're not gonna remember everything right you can't how do you track that yes it eventually it was settled out of court and Oh, yeah, basically everyone who was in the show was like, "Listen, was Lynn uh, a huge 
influence on the show 100%. Should she have done it immediately after it opened and won the Pulitzer and was, like, becoming a money-making hit? No, that was a bad look. Like, it should have been discussed earlier or she should have, like, waited a second. Yeah. Doing it the moment it opened and being like, I wrote Rent was wrong. Um, But – and then they have that off-Broadway revival in 2011 with uh, a whole bunch of other young talent. Um, The thing about Rent now is for something that was so huge – that made that ushered in a new era of audiences that supposedly was this huge influence. I can't imagine it ever coming back to Broadway and I can't imagine it ever having the same love that it once had because every time they try to bring it back in some capacity, there's disdain, Mm. you know, like the off Broadway revival. Everyone was like, ah, it's not terrible, but, like, I don't know. It's just – it's not the same. It they, was also too soon. It was, it yeah. It literally just closed yeah. off Broadway, like, it was two five years. years before. No, two it, years. Not even. It was two years. Oh, no. The, yeah. Too and soon. too soon, the same director – literally everybody was like, it just seems like you're trying to cash in money again. Yeah. Um, But, like, we then was had – Was it at New World Stages? Yeah. Annalie Ashford, Nick Christopher, Adam chandler Barat, uh, MJ Rodriguez was Angel. And then, you know, they do Rent Remix in London. So – possibly another rent in london at some point i can't remember there was another one not long yeah. ago we do rent live there's a rent high school edition but every time they try to kind of bring it back to the pop culture zeitgeist everyone's just like no yeah. just let it go and anytime it's referenced in any other thing like broad city or team america or girls it's never done with like a way that makes you go like yeah rent is great yeah, no, it's, it's made fun of or like the people who love it you're like well that person sucks like it's marnie and girls who loves rent and you're like well marnie fucking sucks you know who loves Rent, though? Who? Yitzhak. Yitzhak? Oh, yeah, and Hedwig. My friend Angel. Yeah. <laughs> in that, in, in, in Yitzhak's defense, Hedwig came out in uh, in uh, 2001, the movie? Yeah. Yeah, so it was still cool to like Rent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was still cool to like Rent. Yeah. I just uh, was, yeah. was thinking so, of an example of a character that I, we, that that I we like that likes Rent. Yeah, absolutely. Yitzhak's a lot to like Rent. Even um, though it's like on a cruise ship production, I think. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, we've kind of mentioned Lindsay Ellis's video. Do we want to talk about it any further? Just how much she hates the show? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's much more to say about it. I think we've kind of covered the points. I will say, though, for, for anybody that's that's interested, it is worth watching. I mean, she takes a hard take on it. Yeah. Um, and it is a... For more, I would argue for more social reasons, but she... Which I think are half fair, half a little harsh. Yeah. I think her story structure criticisms are absolutely fair and also she uses the movie as a bit more of a reference than this show just because i think the movies are readily available i well i think it's partly because the movies were readily available and i think also the movie brings out a lot of the biggest flaws of the show yes so i think that is and so it's it just magnified yeah i think that i I have a feeling that when it was on stage she was like i don't care for this show and then the movie came out and she was like i really hate this yeah yeah. So, so and so that's more what it's about. Yeah. And she's also acknowledged like her favorite show is Phantom. She's seen it a million yeah. times, and she knows every issue that is with Phantom. Well, yes, and and in and in a, in a couple more, slightly more recent years, because I think her rent movie video is from like 2016. It's it's I think early 2017. I think okay. early 2017. Right. I think. But she, but she in a couple of her more recent videos has been like, I play a curmudgeon on TV. Like yeah. she knows that she. Like, she does come at things hard because, she, in some cases, she's trying to play devil's advocate. Yeah. So, like, if you do watch it, I also recommend watching some of her other stuff because she comes at things hard, but it it, it is semi-tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. Um, you know, 
a, lo- a lot of the, the joke of of what she does if you've never watched any of her stuff is usually she'll start off with a bottle of liquor and it's yeah. like wh- whatever it is is like caused her to drink yeah um it, she, it's, well, she's very funny one of my favorite things she's ever done is towards the end of her youtube career she basically did a reappraisal slash apology video to the little mermaid because she oh, had because yeah. back when she was nostalgia chick for fucking what's it, channel awesome was her name yep 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 Ugh, they can go fuck themselves um, but her whole thing was her. She literally, as nostalgic chick, always had to be the point of contention of whatever your nostalgic childhood favorite was. So she like she wrote it and she started in it. But I don't know how often she agreed with the points. I think she was told like you got to do a nostalgic chick on this movie. And I'm sure you know she didn't necessarily love Little Mermaid at the time. But when COVID hit and everyone was in lockdown, she because she's also a Disney girl, she went through a lot of the catalog again and rewatched Little Mermaid for the first time in years. And she was like, oh. This movie is so much better and more nuanced than I ever remembered it being. <laughs> and and she's like and has a lot more to say yeah. that I like she's like every all the jokes about it are kind of uh baseless because if you watch the movie nothing that we're making jokes about are actually in there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I when she made that video I was like Lindsay yeah. Way to fucking go out on a high for me. Yeah. Uh, I love her. her. Well, her and her very last video is on Love Never Dies. Which is hysterical. It's great. Ten years old. I would I would just say if watch the at least part of the Rent video. Yeah. Um, but uh, this is just going to turn into a promotion for Lindsay Ellis. Her um, – watch any of her Phantom videos. They're great. Because, it, because that will give you kind of a sense of – the fact that she's coming hard for anything because she yeah. is a fully self-admitted fan phantom yeah. fan yeah p-h-a-n um so yeah yeah and she and again loving something having something be your favorite doesn't mean you think it is the best thing in the world it's right. just the thing that like brings you the most joy so she acknowledges every issue that there can be in phantom the stage show any movie version but she loves it she loves it i love her um recap of the book and how every time christine's like talking to the phantom and Raul doesn't know what's going on he's like uh slut <laughs> so good slut um okay we're gonna wrap things up now okay can i can, can, oh can i make a political statement yes okay it's you, you look scared it's nothing that creepy we were just talking about um about like age aids and hiv treatment earlier yeah. and i just think that this always deserves to be said especially now yeah and i just because i want people to know because a lot of people don't aren't aware of this especially non-gay men yeah um is that for anybody who is not familiar with with hiv and aids um and as far as like pr- the progression of medicine and stuff i think it's really important to know that a- that hiv is not as transmissible as it once was mm-hmm. and i think it's really important for people to know that the majority of well a large majority of people living with hiv uh taken take enough uh medication to number one keep them healthy but also keep their um their cell count at a point where things are un- where, where it's it an is, undetectable virus it's an undetectable virus and 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 i think it's really important to maybe i'm preaching to the choir on this but if you don't already know this that if if you're with somebody who is undetectable they are also untransmissible which means they cannot pass hiv to you yep. through intercourse or anything else absolutely so, you know, this I'm just saying this to in an attempt to continue to try to end yep. the stigma. I think it's really important. Absolutely. Um, and you know, and, and I and I and I think that j- only because I know I, I just was having a conversation the other day with a person who and and I even did this myself. I where uh, a co- uh, shortly before COVID, I went out on a couple of dates with a guy who told me he was HIV positive, which does not affect did not affect my opinion of him, and 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 because I 
know what I know. It did not worry me. But he was telling me what a horrible stigma it still has and the number of people that would freak out and immediately ghost him Mm -hmm. when they found out about when they found this out about him. So I don't know. I just want to. Yeah. I just want to make sure that that's said on this podcast as as HIV and AIDS has been a conversation topic on this on this particular episode um, and to make sure that all you kids out there are aware of the current state of things and read about read 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 i think it's so important to read about it especially if you're being sexually active there's so much you can do and 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 people really are overall so much safer nowadays but just be aware of your status Mm -hmm. check on your partners with their status and and again untransmissible an undetectable equals untransmissible so thank you gunkle you're welcome listen my listeners should know by now i always preach knowledge 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 you never know everything you're never old enough to know everything keep on learning keep on reading keep on studying and then once you have the information pass it on pass it on the only thing better than learning new shit is sharing that shit yeah um you know that's all i gotta say and don't do it from a holier than thou element you know just share it because it's important yeah i mean uh, i just think it says i think it says a lot even that even living in new york as yeah. as we do live in new york Ugh. um but like but even living in new york in the gay community you would think that people would be more aware and educated on yeah. subjects like that and there are so many people that are not and so ah. i think and so i it's one of those things that anytime hiv comes up and i feel like I, there might be somebody who might not know it's a, it's a piece of information i like to throw out there for people to be more people to be more aware of yeah like our country is so fucked up when it comes to sex and sexuality yeah. and sensuality and because there are diseases that come that can come with sex and uh as gay men we have always been categorized as more sexually uh promiscuous the word i like to use the term i like to use is Active. um se- sexually opportunistic sure uh, I coined that. I like to use it. It's instead of saying slutty. And because we have had things stigmatized to us as infections or diseases primarily with our community, we have actually had to educate and fight against it. Mm-hmm. Because anyone can get any kind of STI or any kind of anything from anything from anyone. So just know that. So get educated. Uh, as we wrap things up with Krant, uh, first things first. <laughs> I was thinking of doing this as a game with guests. And either I can challenge you or you can challenge me. Okay. Originally, so if the, I want to tell you about the progression that, that happened here. First, this thing was called Who Lives, Who Dies, Janine Tesori. And, <laughs> and it was Let's Connect Rent to Janine Tesori somehow through like a six degrees of separation. Ooh. Then I went, well, why even go there? If this is my podcast, let's keep things going from my house rules. Six degrees of Sally Murphy. And then I went, or do we just do six degrees of and we challenge each other with a person? And uh, find a way to do a six degrees of with that person. Now, here are the rules. It can be cast members or production team. We do not count uh, theaters. Okay. Uh, and we and it doesn't count to do a revival of. So you can't be like, oh, so-and-so is in this show, which had a revival starring so-and-so. It's got to be, like, worked with in some capacity. So I'll, I'll, I'll also say, so if, it's, if we're talking production team, the connection has to be through someone from the original company. It can okay. be a replacement if that replacement then blah, blah, blah. Okay. okay. Do you want to do a six degrees of? To Janine Tesori? Whoever you want to do. I, do you oh. want me? I can challenge oh, you. Because I, I was ready to do Janine Tesori you can do You can do Janine Tesori and I can do Sally Murphy. Okay, great. Okay. Janine Tesori, I can do it in one. Great. So, um, wait. 
uh, I think Aiko Nakasone, who was in the original ensemble uh-huh. of Rent, and she was in the furry pink bra. Yeah. She was in the ensemble of the 1985 Broadway revival of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, which Janine Tesori did the dance arrangements for, or music arrangements yeah. for, and there's your connection. Yeah, absolutely. And one. I've got one for you, too. Do it. Sally Murphy. Tay Diggs was in the ensemble of Carousel. Boom. Oh, yeah. Yes, he was. Broadway debut. That's right. Yep. There, I mean, there are so many others I could do, too, but I'm not going to, because Sally Murphy's connected. Daphne Ruben Vega and Bernarda Alba with Sally Murphy. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Saw it twice. Adina Menzel. Never met Sally Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> Anna Pascal. I'm assuming played Tonsil Hockey with Sally Murphy at one point. Um, yeah. I think that's going to be that's gonna be my new game. Adam, this has been lovely. Where can people find you if you want them to find you? Oh, just uh, you know, these days, just Instagram. Same. Uh, just Adam Ells. A-D-A-M-E-L-S. Yep. At Matt Kopp, like usual spelling. I now have reviews on there that some people seem to like. Thank you. They're, they're just dishy enough. Thank you. Just dishy enough. Well, I am at this point. I probably will have posted some. I'm debating if I want to do reviews for all the shows I've seen recently. So Piano Lesson and Top Dog, and then eventually Death of a Salesman. Um, I don't see why not. He doesn't see why not. You don't get to be in the Times unless you review everything. I like reading your opinion, and that way, I see. I like I like when you post things because then I can I can bring up a couple points to you afterwards, but then I also don't make you have to repeat yourself either. Thank you. Like the reviews of this pod. Speaking of which, if you like the podcast, give us five stars. Give us a nice little rating or a five star review. It doesn't have to be clever, or it can be whatever you want. Uh, we had gotten since last time I had Adam on, we had another one star rating, which brought us down from four point nine to four point eight. But then we got a m- bunch more five stars, but it hasn't gone up. So I want more five stars. Give me back up to four point nine. Do you know what was? Oh, I guess I guess it doesn't say what the one star rating if it's like based off of uh, an episode. No. Oh. No. I think I, wouldn't that be kind of amazing if you could like tell where it happened? What what episode did yeah, it for like people? What killed it. Yeah. When they were just like, "Fuck this one." Was it Smile that killed the uh, the podcast star? That wasn't Sideshow killed the podcast star. It could have been. That was a fucking long. I mean, this was. This is gonna be long. long. Yeah, I'm not gonna edit much. I'm so sorry. It's gonna be long. I'm sorry, everybody. We talked about a lot of amazing shit. We did. We did. Well, and after now that you've introduced me to Blank Check, the the podcast, yeah. which is very nonlinear, very much like this one. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. They they tend to go on also, so I, they I feel do. less guilty. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I've gotten a little over them lately with their current Kubrick, uh, oh, sorry Kubrick series, but they are very enjoyable. I like I like their format very much. Yeah, if if, if I may or may not have told the if format. If you like if you like movies, listen to Blank Check with Griffin and David. Yeah, they're he's Griffin, he's David. They are I the one that you know I that David w- lived in London. <laughs> what <laughs> ding dong ding dong <laughs> i want i want to be on that podcast i want one of them on this podcast let's get on their podcast let's do it well next time they do a musical i want to like fucking troll their social media and listeners troll their social media and be like next musical you do matt Coplick and adam ellsbury have to be on yeah they have to be on oh we, I w- we would do really well against them we really would i say it like it's a fight they- well we would add context 
because yes. they they have a vendetta against Rob Marshall, and I understand that. But I also I think Rob Marshall is like a great blank check series for him to do because Chicago's his first movie. It fully brings the movie musical back. I don't know if Little Mermaid's gonna change their mind. I no. hope it's good, but who it's, knows? No, it's gonna be bad. We know it's gonna be bad. I we know. But Chicago is still the best movie musical of this century. It's the best movie adaptation of a musical since Little Shop. It's air fucking tight. And I would love to be on the podcast to tell them why it's amazing. Because I'm sure they think it's just fine. But that movie fucking slaps. Anyway, that's it. Uh, check us back next week when we cover I don't know what because this series is all out of order. It's exciting. It could be any one of your favorite off-Broadway to Broadway transfers except for Spelling Bee. Expect for, or, or title a show. I'm <laughs> or, so sorry. It could be for Colored Girls. It could be a chorus line. It could be Next to Normal. It could be The Golden Apple. It could be Once Upon a Mattress. It could be Doubt. Who knows? Who knows? Heyo. Once on this island, baby. Heidi Chronicles, Torch Song Trilogy, Love, Vettel, Compassion, Significant Other. We're doing a lot of gay ones. Good. Yeah. You're coming back on for one. I know that. I just don't know which one. I yeah. can't wait. I can. Um, Adam. Who... <laughs> 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 oh, my Adam, God. Adam, we've had Adina. I think we've had Daphne. Um, Let me check. Have we had Daphne close this out before? Um, Okay, yeah. I don't think we've done... Daphne Rubin Vega. Great. So we are going to close out with her. Do we do Rocky Horror? Do we do In the Heights, where she sounds awesome? But she also sounds really great in Rocky Horror. I think Rocky Horror is the best she's ever sounded. It's such a good fit for her. That that was a solid cast. That cast recording is exceptional. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's so those arrangements, motherfucker. Just tongue talk hot tonsil hockey me sideways rocky horror show um i know yeah also amazing cast okay we're gonna do daphne in rocky horror got a light get a light you don't want to see me die <laughs> don't waste your money on me me, me. <laughs> i'm shivering cold, cold. Cold. daphne we love you we love you so hard oh you are a badass like truly this is all love. It's all love. She's such a good actress, too. She really is. She really – I know. That, that's the thing. Sorry. She looked good. I, but, like, like, okay, we are gay – okay, she, I know she has no offense from this because that bitch has lived a life, and she knows that the gays love her. Yeah. And she knows that in order for us to not mock but to mimic certain line deliveries she has done on that cast recording means we have listened to her so much and have dissected it so much that it only comes from obsession and love. She also can't tell you that she hasn't gotten it from a million other people, too. So. Jonathan Larson didn't want her. It took him, like, four years to like her Mimi. <laughs> Who the fuck are we? We're two gay nobodies. Like, let her listen to us and be like, oh, there's boys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so here's here's Daphne, everybody, and we'll check you back next week. Thanks for sticking it out. Bye. Bye.
Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.